This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California. They were founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared. Their mission was to create a treatment center that relied heavily on compassion and connection and less so on control, and they did it. They have a team with decades and decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including the dread SMI. Everyone that I know that has been there cannot say enough. I just heard somebody else say how great it was, how the detox was as comfortable as they've ever had it, that the amenities were out of control. Fucking sound bath, meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and of course the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. They've got it all over there, and it's been written about as one of the top five treatment centers anywhere. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get unfucked, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. It is ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? It is an app, but it's so much more. It's a community. There are Zooms. I'm doing a Zoom for Sober Buddy every Wednesday at 1 p.m. So if you want to go to that Zoom, you can sign up to Sober Buddy at YourSoberBuddy.com. There's a free seven-day trial. There's a free 30-day trial. They have a sober tracker. The app has challenges that help you stay present. I would suggest going and signing up to Your Sober Buddy because more than anything else, it is a community and it is a helpful way to get sober or to stay sober. And of course, it's available in the App Store and the Google Play Store and also at YourSoberBuddy.com. Please check it out. 
I forgot to say, besides the Wednesday 1 p.m. dopey Zoom, the Zoom that I do, there's like six other Zooms a week. So check them out, YourSoberBuddy.com. This episode is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm. They are incredible friends of the show. They can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, your payroll, and almost any other business need you might have. They pride themselves on having exceptional relationships with their clients. They basically let you do your thing. If you have a vision, you do your vision, and they take care of the rest. They do all the accounting, the payroll, the the taxes, all that stuff. Everything is off your plate so you can do what you want to do. And most importantly, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. I said it, but fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now, and he knows the struggle as well as the success. Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. If you need an accountant, go to Evolution Accounting and Consulting. That's it. That's the show. I mean, that's the ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I'm Dave. What are you laughing at? I'm laughing at you. We're joined by the great Ray Brown. Welcome back to the show here. I'm going to play applause. Yay. Yay, Ray. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me, Ray? We use the same applause on Rainbow Records. Hold on. Yay. <laughs> uh, why are you laughing at me, Ray? Well, what I've witnessed, you're discombobulated. And then the interesting, thing, and the interesting thing about this discombobulation of which you speak is that the thing you said is, you're never like this, Dave. I know. I was like... What is wrong? Like, are you drunk? Like, what's going on? Well, you've been with me for a while. I well, think you, you know can... what? I realize. You know what you need? A producer. I am the producer. I know you need someone else to be the producer. Do you think I could survive with someone else to be the producer? Uh, could someone else survive? That's the question. <laughs> yes. These are these are interesting <laughs> right. questions. And in the evolution of Dopey, like we were just talking, like maybe there will one day be a studio, a home base where people come in and out, where you're the talent. Yeah, I wouldn't be the producer right. at that point. You just arrive, sit down, and start doing my thing. That would be awesome. But we're far, 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 <laughs> we're not anywhere near that. We're far, far, far away from that. So welcome back to the show, Ray. How, how's everything? Everything is great. <laughs> is it, is you, I saw you post a little Yuletide greetings on Dopey Nation. Oh, yeah, my, my roommate forced me to do that. Why? He bought that tree and then said, say hi to the Dopey Nation and then put it up there. He like, how, you looked like you were in a little hostage video. Yeah, I was. It was. There was, I could yes. see it behind your eyes. <laughs> it was true. And, uh, and your roommate, is, is, is everything okay over there? Yeah. Do you feel like at any second he might murder you in your sleep? Should I've we put thought it, about, yeah. Should we put it on the show just in case? Yeah, I've, thought, I've said that to people. If, if I turn up dead, that's who did it. We joke, we joke about it. Oh, boy. <laughs> I have to say that makes me very nervous. How likely on the scale of 1 to 10 will your roommate murder you? Zero. You're sure? I'm sure. Okay. Um, I had a little pseudo-alcoholic moment this oh, yeah? week. Do you want to hear about yeah, it? Yeah. What? Okay. So, you know, like, my family is very uh, Christmas-oriented. Yes. And, and Linda, like, people at my meeting are like, oh, are you setting up the lights? And I was 
like, no. I was like, my, my wife does that. Yeah. My wife, Linda just fucking sets everything up. And you, did you saw her? Did you see her yeah. Christmas? Oh, set? yeah. I saw the, at, at Thanksgiving, I saw decorations. Oh, tell Dopey Nation about there was, Thanksgiving. There was like a lot of pumpkins and beautiful Thanksgiving table and flowers. And, uh, and I, I had a long train ride back with Alan. I've never talked to Alan for, Two hours. Did he tell you about good, cautious financial investments? No. Did he tell you about how much he's beloved by the Dopey Nation? I don't remember that. What did he talk about? Uh, Fantasy basketball? We talked... I can't remember what we talked about. So it was that riveting of a conversation. (laughs) And then he walked me home to keep me safe. Because I said, I'm not... I'm going to walk. I'm not going to walk from Penn Station. It's too dangerous out there. And he's like, I'll walk with you. So he walked you to 14th Street. He walked me to here. Oh, well, that's uh, you walked him home, basically. (laughs) And then you kept walking. Yes. All right. Well, my dad is not as chivalrous as you make him out to And nobody murdered me. Yeah, but we're worried about your roommate. Um, So here's the alcoholic moment. Yes. Uh, For Christmas, we like did, Linda did crazy decorations. She even got one of these stupid blow ups. Oh, yeah? You know, like, you know, like these. I mean, what I would like to see is a house full of blow-ups, you know, like it's ridiculous, yeah. and then see the family fighting. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got all this stupid shit, and then the father's like angry, and it's crazy. It's yeah. like they, they turn their houses into gingerbread houses. And yeah, I was yeah. like, we don't do blow-ups in our house. And now we have, now a little, we have a little polar bear outside our house. We wanted to get a blow-up Santa for a rainbow like a, and put it in a nightclub. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I think that would have been good. I think a blow-up Santa would have really fit in with the rainbow yeah. motif. So Linda did all this work, and she set it all up. And then Linda's been selling all this stained glass yeah, shit. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. So she went to this stained glass, or, you know, like a crafty carnival, yeah. festival, whatever you call it. Market? N- yeah, not a carnival. Call it a market. <laughs> it, was a st- it was a market for crafty goods, and they sold these hot chocolate bombs. You know what hot chocolate bombs no. are? Hot chocolate bombs are these globes of chocolate that are full of chocolate and marshmallows and stuff, and you you put them in a mug and you pour milk on them. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we got our one night we got our Christmas tree and we decided you we pour were going to do hot milk on them. Well, that's the idea. But you you we got the Christmas tree and we decided we were going to do the hot chocolate bombs. So we, we Susan got a milk chocolate one, I got a dark chocolate one, Nora got a white chocolate one, and Linda, I think, got a milk chocolate mm-hmm. one. And she's, you know, we're boiling up the milk, and you pour the milk on the ball, and the ball kind of pops open with all this chocolatiness oh, nice. and, like, marshmallows. It's crazy, and it's really, like, dank chocolatiness. Yeah. And, um, and I'm like, mm, you know, like, I'm excited to have it, and the kids are excited, and I look at it. I'm like, does it really look like enough chocolate, though? Like, I'm not certain that this is going to satisfy. <laughs> so you put another ball in? No. So I reach, I go into the cabinet, and I and I, and I take out a Starbucks hot chocolate packet. Yeah. But I set it up behind the cereal box so Linda couldn't see me. So I have the, <laughs> the mug of hot chocolate in front of me behind the cereal box, and Nora sees me, and she raises her eyebrows at me as though I have a bag of Coke. Like <laughs> It's like this crazy moment. And right. I open up the hot chocolate, and I add it to my thing. Linda doesn't see it, and I give it to Nora. <laughs> she adds it to her. <laughs> and, Linda, and we're both looking at Linda and looking at each other in this total conspiring way. Right. And I just put enough in to make mine perfect. She accidentally dumps the 
<laughs> whole thing into her fucking cup, and she's trying to deal with it. And she, she, I don't think she drank it, but I, it was a real weird alcoholic, drug addict family style moment. Right, right, with hot chocolate. You know what I'm saying? Though? Yeah, yeah. It's a little. It's like, uh, it's like a little bananas. Like when your addiction comes out. I also had this insane dream, um, and I've had a dream like it before. I had a dream that. Uh, I went to a hospital to meet Brandon Novak. Yeah. Like he was working at the hospital or something, or like maybe it was, it was like, it was pretty vague. And you know who was working at the hospital also? Who? Chris. Oh my God. And Chris had been alive the whole time. Oh and he my hadn't God. really died. And he was like, yeah, I didn't want to tell you. And it was like, that a, is freaky. And it's not the first dream I've had like that. In a hospital, running into Chris where he was still alive and faked his death. Oh, and my God. It, and that whole day, it really lasted with me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really weird kind of thing. And then I had, I had a conversation with one of his friends who had similar dreams. Hmm. Yeah, when you have one of those dreams, it sticks with you all day long. Yeah, and I've, I've had a lot of using dreams. Really? I've yeah. never had... People talk about that. I've never had that. I, or maybe I did once. I don't know. I think I had a dream recently where I smoked a bunch of weed and I tripped and I'm tripping in the dream and I'm like, I can't tell anyone that I smoked weed on Dopey because I need to be sober. I did have a, a using dream where I couldn't get high. I kept, I, I forgot what drug it was, but it wasn't working. Well, I had infinite dreams. I When I when I first would, would kick, I would have dreams of having heroin in my pocket and then I'd run into people and I couldn't use it was no, like yeah. it was like the threes company scenario yes. but with heroin in <laughs> yeah. your pocket where you can't do anything <laughs> so it's interesting this week on the show it's a little home style dopey episode and it's also interesting that the initials JJ are repeating because it's funny because in the in maybe last month I was trying to get John Joseph on the show, and he came back on the show. The singer. If you call him a singer, yeah, sure. The, the screamer. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then I wanted Jeremy Jackson from Baywatch to come on and oh, do yeah? the Dopey Fitness Challenge. And then I wanted Johnny Jukebox from my meeting to yeah, come on. So that's JJ. three JJs. And we did John Joseph in November, but Johnny Jukebox and Jeremy Jackson were nowhere <laughs> to be found. And um, and now we got Johnny Jukebox and Jeremy Jackson on this home-style spun dopey. But before we get to uh, Johnny Jukebox, I want to say that you should subscribe to Patreon. Oh, Ray, I, I tell them about that fucking video, the, the anti-hoot video. Oh, yeah. It's a... I think you posted some of that stuff on Patreon, but Dave went to like my scene, like the club where I was like based at, and interviewed my friends, but way before I knew Dave. It's weird, right? It was weird to see my friends talking to you, what was that, 20 years ago? Yes. Yeah. 21 years ago. 21 years ago. So I'm going to put that on Patreon this week. I did some stuff with Aaron on Patreon. We're going to do another Raytreon. You know what would be weird if you were interviewing me? That would be incredible. That would be, I mean, but you were interviewing my friends. That would be incredible if we had an interview from 1999. Well, we, you know, because I lived across the street here, we must have passed each other on the sidewalk. Right, but I was a little kid, though. You were a little kid. You were like, who is that handsome little kid? (laughs) So um, 
this guy, Johnny Jukebox, goes to my Beach Bums meeting. And you've been to the Beach Bums yeah, meeting. Yeah. What did you think? About the meeting? It was, was it cold when I was there? No, you went in the summer I on was, the beach. It was nice. Oh, you cursed a lot, and they kept telling you to not curse. <laughs> that, that was your recollection? And it was, it was nice being on the beach. But I was thinking, anybody walking by here can overhear what you're saying, so it's not very private. No, it's very public. I mean, when you go to that, you have to think, I don't care. But it's early morning. When's the last time you went to a meeting, Ray Brown? Um, Well, I was taking a friend of mine, so whenever that was, a month or so ago. And, you know, I've never sponsored anybody. I've never, I've taken people to meetings, but never like this. So this guy reached out to me and said, I need help. I want to go to one of your meetings. And I took him for three weeks, we went to meetings, we read the big book, I gave him a big book, um, I gave him literature, I, just we talked, and I, I'd never had that experience of like being in that role, and I was like surprised at how good I was at it and how helpful it was for me to like be helping this other person who I, you know, kind of didn't really think it was going to work for, and it did not, I mean, he's, you know, he... He's back out. He's back out, but... Um, it was an interesting experience for me. I'd never had it. Well, the coolest thing was how much you enjoyed it because you were enjoying... You you needed the excuse to go back, too. Yeah, yeah. Because you're not going now, right? No. And I've I've written to him. I'm like, anytime you want to go... You Let's know, go. Yeah, there's a rock and roll meeting. There's, you know... When he heard about the rock stars meeting, he got very interested. He wanted to go to that one. Yeah. I don't think it exists anymore. Here, do you want to hear an email we got? Yeah. All right. He says, hey, what's up, Dopey? Fellow Dopehead here. My name's Garrett. I'm 25 years old and have been off heroin and fentanyl and whatever other garbage I could get my hands on for a little over two years. I discovered your podcast in a moment of boredom while at work, and honestly, it is fucking fantastic. You hear that, right? Yeah. Fantastic. Fucking fantastic. I love the guests. You know who I miss is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Crack. Yes. He was... uh, (laughs) Wait, where is he? With the dad. And the dad's like swinging at him. I remember sitting in the car in D.C. on that side street listening to that. He sent a bunch of stuff. I think we read it. I think we read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, I love the guests who speak, a majority of which are people I genuinely know or listen to and had no idea they ever struggled. I love your approach and all the tough or strange questions you always have for the guests as well. But I will tell you, my favorite part of the show is the bit of taboo twist you acknowledge and admit to feeling about recovery as a program standpoint. You mentioned in the Mighty Ducks episode at the end of how you don't care if people get by just off of the fellowship or use the big book about the whole program or with or without a sponsor or are on marijuana maintenance or whatever it might be. This is a statement that has resonated with me. Uh, that's just because I don't want anyone to get angry at me. Um, I take a small mix of things to stay sober and don't regularly attend meetings or use the book. Nonetheless, I have found something that works for me and works for my family and keeps me sober. Uh, And for that, I'm a grateful dude. Just glad to hear someone out here gets that aspect. And I love the podcast. Keep on keeping on, man. Thanks a ton. So that's a nice email. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking, I I don't know if I told this, but my friend that I took to the meetings, before we went in, he's like, is it going to be eight people sitting in a circle? And I was like, that's just in the movies. That's this is going to be a like a big party. There's going to be like a hundred people, and it's super social. And we walked in, and it's eight people sitting in a circle. And I was like, "Holy shit!" He knew 
and and I was just, I said I used to come to this meeting and it was like very crowded and they go that's tomorrow night this is what meet I took them to the wrong meeting. And speaking of which, we're going to go to one of the mainstays of my home group. His name is John. People call him Johnny Jukebox. Here he is, Johnny Jukebox. But before we get to Johnny Jukebox, and I know that Johnny Jukebox loves meat, and I know that Ray doesn't love meat, but do you love meat? Are you guys excited for holiday eating? I know I am excited. I am big time excited for holiday eating. And I think holiday eating meat is holiday meeting. And this episode of Dopey is brought to you by ButcherBox because ButcherBox has all you need for a tasty, stress-free holiday season with high-quality protein delivered right to your door. ButcherBox takes the guesswork out of finding high-quality meat and seafood you can trust. 100% grass-fed, beef-free range, organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. I've tried it. It was amazing. We had the ribs. We had some chicken. We had some steak. All of it was amazing. And it came in this incredible package, packaged perfectly, frozen, and then we grilled and we broiled and we, we had it feast. So I totally suggest doing butcher box. I, I couldn't believe how good it looked when it came out of the packaging. It tells me to read this, but it was true. The holiday season is made better and tastier with butcher box for a limited time. They're offering dopey listeners ground beef for life and 10% off of your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dopey and use code dopey to get 10% off your first box and ground beef for life of your membership. That's butcherbox.com slash dopey and use the code dopey to claim this deal. Do it. The meat is really good and it's incredibly convenient. I cannot say enough good stuff about ButcherBox. And um, I don't know. I really liked it. We got a huge package. We made the chicken, the ribs, the beef. Everything was incredible. And um, I don't know. This is the longest ad I ever did. But it was also the, probably the greatest thing that I ever got from a sponsor besides money. I also want to remind you of Nat's podcast. I don't know if you know about Nat X. Nat X has a podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages. Nat does it with his friend Mike. And it's basically about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the latest books, medical research. They just talked about... um. That Jonah Hill movie, Stutz. These guys are on the cusp of what you guys want to know about. Find them wherever you find your podcasts. Nat is a great friend of the show and a member of Dopey Nation. It's middleagesrecovery.com. Please check them out. And somewhere else Nat is, Nat's fucking all up in Sober Together. I don't know if you guys know about Sober Together. I've really enjoyed being a part of Sober Together can't believe I'm doing all these ads in the middle of the show. But I like Sober Together. Sober Together is an app where basically you check in with video, and it's this little scene of addicts and alcoholics, and you see them, and they tell you how they're doing, they recommend shit, and then you write back to them with video. It's like a really cool connected thing. 
You can check them out at SoberTogether.com. They are also available on the App Store. They're not available yet on the Google Play Store. But if you have an iPhone, get into the Sober Together community. There's a ton of dopes in there. I think I've posted like 18 days straight. So get into Sober Together. Check it out. It's free. It's fucking free. Just go in there for free. All right. I, maybe I'll get Johnny Jukebox to join Sober Together too. And here he is, straight out of fucking Patchogue, Long Island, Johnny Jukebox. Actually, one more ad before we get to Johnny Jukebox. I got Ray Brown's music all over this episode, and I want to tell you that you can find Ray Brown's music on Spotify. Check out Ray Brown on Spotify or Bandcamp. All right, here's Johnny Jukebox. I am in Long Island, in Patchogue, on the water, looking out at the bay with a local... This is going to be bad because you like to be humble. But a local legend, a pillar of our community... They call him Johnny Jukebox. Welcome to the show. And Johnny Crackhead. I never heard that. I heard Big John and Johnny Jukebox. I never heard Johnny Crackhead. Those are the old days. Well, uh, we're going to get into why you're called Johnny Jukebox. But first, I have to say, it's too bad Starbucks isn't paying me, but we ordered white chocolate. What is it? White, white mocha. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it is delicious. I was going to be like, can I have a black cold brew? And I was like, no, fuck it. Just give me the white mocha. It's like very smooth and very sweet. And if you are going to Starbucks, get the white mocha. Try the white mocha. It's off the hook. So have you lived out here your whole life? No. Where are you from? I'm originally from Freeport. Okay. Freeport, Long Island. I grew up, I was born in Oceanside, grew up in Freeport. All right. And do you like being a pillar of our community? No. Why not? I just want to be one, of, one amongst the others. One of the herd. Now, let's just jump in because I, I want to know. When's the, when's the first time? I've heard a lot of things. This morning I heard you share about being a kid and banging your head against the stairs to get attention. Yeah, I mean, my, on any other day or any day, because I was a little wild, rebellious kid, my mother would punish me. Go to your room, you know, just like any other mother would. And while I'm up there, I'm sitting at the top of the stairs, banging my head on the top on the wall, putting holes in the wall, because I wanted the punishment to end, or I just wanted attention. When I was a kid, and if I said, if I said I'm bored at my grandparents' house, my grandfather would say, well, then go bang your fucking head against the wall. <laughs> That's what he would always say. And I never did. So when you're beating your head against the wall, what does your mom do? Nothing. Ignore me, <laughs> ignore me even longer. So it was, it was like, it was counterreactive. It didn't work well. It never, it never worked. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we all hear, we go to these meetings and we hear stories about, running around the family party and finding the alcohol or, you know, like, you know, at the end of the night, you, you drink the dregs of the cup. What was the first time you, you drank or did drugs? I can't even remember because my brothers were involved with selling drugs, or my brother was, and I have all the brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest, and they all drank drug, you know, I mean, not to the extreme, but one of them did. But drinking, drinking was always available in my house, you know, full liquor cabinet. During the holidays, it was always espresso and Sambuca, and that was my favorite. That was like drinking Formula 44D. It would heat up my ears, and it would make my face red, and it was like, oh, man. How old are we talking, though? Six, seven, eight. Wow. Okay. Do you remember the first time you smoked weed? I can't give you a date, but I know it was probably between 10 and 12. 
And did you become like one of these kids in school, like stoner, like full blown scumbag, full blown stoner? Okay. And when did that hit? Well, I remember in, I guess, ninth grade, ninth grade. I remember at, at night I would roll 80 joints because back in the day we'd get an ounce of weed, or I would get an ounce of weed. I'd roll 80 joints. Your brother sold weed? No, my brother sold everything. Cocaine. At that point? Pills, mushrooms. At that point in your life? Mm, it was on and, on and off. All, all, yeah, I guess so. So when you get an ounce, did you get it from your brother? No. All right. No. Weed was from the street. He, had other, he wouldn't sell nothing to me. I mean, we weren't involved like that, even though I was stealing his drugs. But I would roll 80 joints. I would bring 80 to school. I'd sell 40 and smoke the other 40. Every period, I would have guys come out. They would all come and meet me at the duck pond over in Freeport. And some of you guys that are listening will remember this, you know, sitting at the duck pond smoking weed between class. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, like, did you see yourself as a drug dealer? Soon after that. And what, what was the progression? Yeah, soon after that. The progression was that, yes, yeah, always having money and drugs. That's basically, I didn't really care if I sold it because I already had money. But the whole idea was just to have it. Whatever it took to have, well, it started with marijuana, then it was mescaline, then it was all, in a, all, all of the above. What did the mescaline look like? I never did mescaline. Mescaline looked like saccharin. Years ago, they had this saccharin. They'd put it in, you put it in your coffee. It was like a splendor. It was shaped like a little tiny barrel. It would come in purple, red, yellow, green, every, every color. And the mescaline, who had the mescaline? Who had the mescaline? I did. No, but where did you get <laughs> the I fucking mescaline? I would go to Central Park. Where would you get it in Central Park? In the meadow? At the band shell. At the band shell. Where right the at the band shell. I, would meet a, I usually meet a Spanish guy there. And I did it for at years and years and years. And I would pick up 100, then 200, then 10,000. Really? Yeah, I was, I, was, I was selling mescaline. Did you do a lot of mescaline? Lots of mescaline. What every, every day, just about. What's mescaline like versus mushrooms or acid or whatever? Mescaline is more like a speedy type of, of hallucinogen. You know, where you don't really lose control. Like, I mean, if you're tripping on acid, you really can't. Sometimes, or I couldn't function. You just sit there and melt. You're not going to be out and about. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Or if you are, it's probably a big mistake. Yeah, a big mistake. Falling over tables and tripping over every fucking thing. But lots and lots. I mean, that was my favorite thing to do. So were you like mescaline king, kingpin of I Freeport? Was, I, was mes- I was probably mescaline kingpin of Nassau County. Really? Yeah. So what does that look like? Well, I had a little moped. It was an MB5, and I would go. I, I, my base spot was in Baldwin Shopping Center down in in Baldwin, South Baldwin, North Atlantic, Atlantic Avenue. And I would sell everybody come out Friday night, Thursday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, whenever the fuck they came out, they bought mescaline. Two for five, four for ten. And then word got around from doing it so much that, I mean, I had customers at Massapequa Park. I, I would go to Massapequa, Sunrise Mall, on my little fucking scooter and meet people over there selling mescaline there. How old? 14, 15, I guess, 15, 15-ish. Wow. So you're 15 years old selling thousands of barrels of mescaline. Lots of mescaline, yes. Were you like a little hippie then? What did you look like? I was long hair, spikes on my arm, listening to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Okay. 
quiet riot. I can see it. Fucking accept and all that good shit. All right. So 1415 mescaline kingpinning on the moped. And were you, did you have aspirations like Scarface style aspirations? No. I don't, I don't, I was too stoned to be thinking about shit like that all the time. I didn't, I don't know if I had like goals or, or idols or something like that. Sure. Back, back in the eighties, let's, I guess that's the eighties. Yeah. Early eighties. Shit like that didn't really exist. You know what I mean? You know, you know, like Andy Gibb or fuck <laughs> some type of crazy <laughs> right. shit. You know, some like Scarface or something. I don't know. I didn't really have anybody like posters on my wall. What got you higher? The money, the drugs, or the, the status? The combination. The combination of everything. Money, drugs, and status. Yeah, absolutely. So what went wrong with your masculine empire? What went wrong with it? Uh, the police. <laughs> They didn't like. They didn't like it. Well, while I was selling mescaline, I started to get into cocaine scene, and selling cocaine. And back in the days, it was very expensive. I mean, my brother sold cocaine, so I started selling cocaine, or stealing cocaine from him. I wasn't really doing cocaine, but I was taking it from him and selling it. And did he have like a special box, a safe? Like, how did you? He all over. He'd hide it everywhere. And where would he sell it? People would come to the house, right to the fucking house. How much older was he than you? He's, we're all three years apart. He's the oldest, and he, so he's nine years older than me. All right, so you're 14, 15, he's 24, 25. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And he's dealing a ton of coke out, of, that, out of your parents' house? Coke. I, I found hash in there, uh, mushrooms, all kinds of shit. Did your parents know? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what they knew. Actually, I guess around this time, what happened is I'm in, my, I'm in my dad's house. My parents got divorced at like 10 years old. So my mother's living, my mother, I moved, I moved in with my mother into Westbury for a while until uh, my drunken uh, stepfather just decided to want to hit me one day. And then I wanted to smack the shit out of him and I got thrown out of the house. That was it. Where'd you go? Back to Freeport, to my dad's house. And that's where your brother was? Yeah. And it was like, was it like crazy boy's house? You know, the kid is dealing. What's your dad doing? My dad owned the business. He owned a gas station in Baldwin. And do you think he knew what was up? I don't think he cared. He wasn't the type. He wasn't the type to monitor us. What kind of it type? It was like what a free for type? all. What he owned a business. He owned a big business, a gas station, selling tons of gas and, and repairing cars. Right. And he, you know, that was his. That was his life. And he didn't notice the traffic in and out of the house. He had to notice. He had to notice. But you know something? I, I, if you ask me to recall these things, mentally I can't. I can't recall. I see things. I see the carpet. I see the house. I see the front door. I see my brother. I see the drugs. I see all the things. But I don't remember the attitudes and the thinking and the behavior of my parent and my father. What he said. I remember having a fucking party at the house and there was like, 300 people showed up and he came flying in and went ballistic. You know, he, he went fucking nuts. But other than that, I don't, re I don't remember what, what it was like with him. So stealing coke from your brother, do you remember that? Absolutely. And what was that? Absolutely. Stealing coke from my brother. Did, you, did, did somebody say, hey, can I get some coke? Or, or were you like, hmm, if I had some coke, I could make more money? Well, in the beginning, I didn't think like that because I didn't know about it. I didn't understand what it was. What cocaine was. But every day at my house, it was a party. 
So my father, my brother would be upstairs in his room selling shit. Then at the end of the night, he'd end up with one or two girls in the room. You know, it was it was a free for all. So I mean, everybody's everybody's. It was a party was over, and I'm a little kid, and I'm looking to steal money or drugs from him. You know, always looking to steal and get ahead. You know, so I'm like a little fucking mouse in the middle of the night looking for something, whether it was whatever it was. So how did your drug dealing progress? Cocaine, stealing it from my brother. Then I ended up hanging at that age. I mean, 15. Yeah, about 15 years old because I knew my first arrest, big arrest, was at 16. So I guess between 14, 15 years old, it progressed very fast. You doing the coke? Selling coke. When's the first time you did it? Not for years? No, no, no. I think I did. I don't remember heavily doing it. I wasn't, it wasn't like an addiction. But yeah, I remember doing some. But mescaline and weed and drinking was more or less my fun thing to do at the time. It's interesting to me because I talked to so many people about uh, this kind of stuff. And it's so funny, like, that the addiction doesn't show up for so long. Right. Like the, the, the compulsion to the thing. It's because like, it's fun in the beginning. Right. Until right. it's not fun. I think for me, when I started smoking pot, you know, obviously it's not like being addicted to heroin or coke or anything, but when I got into it, I was really like psychologically invested in always being high. Right. And if I wasn't high, I was like, I needed to work that out, like get high. I needed to find, like it was like, I was like a junkie for weed, like as a kid, you know what I mean? Like, right, like right. in my as late teens, whatever. And I, and I lived like it was an addiction, even though it wasn't. Right. And it's like when you're telling about when you were a kid, it wasn't that, it was fun. Listen, I was high all the time, every single day, whether we were smoking, drinking, tripping, whatever we were doing, we were high every day. And you never ran out because your brother had endless, endless, endless. Just because we had, I had too many friends. You know, I was in the business. I was in the business. We were all getting high. Either we're chipping in $5, $20, $10. We're buying batteries for the fucking radio. We had a plan every day. You got to buy this 8D batteries for the radio so we can fucking have blasting music. And we figure out either we're going to buy a beer ball, we're going to buy fucking cases of some dog piss, we're going to smoke, we're going to get some weed, we're going to, you know, do some mescaline, some acid, whatever, whatever, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And that's how every day was planned. And like, as the person who's providing drugs for all these people, did you find like uh, that feeling of, oh, I have friends because I have drugs? Right, and if I didn't have it, they had it, or somebody they. So it was, you didn't feel your 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 identity wasn't linked to being like I have everything. I wasn't the everything guy. You know, I would generally. I think everybody back in the day always had weed from somewhere. But you know what I mean, John? Like self-esteem. Like when people only get self-esteem, like drug dealers who get their self-esteem from having drugs. Right. Did you find that to be the case when you were That wasn't the case. Right. That wasn't my case. My case was having fun. Party time. All I was concerned about is party. Even though I was making a ton of fucking money, I was making an asshole full of money, that wasn't my main goal. My main goal was to have fun. Actually, to please people. You know, get high. Get fucking high. To be able to provide that also. Right. Like, so that they, they can have fun because you're there, because drugs right. are there. Right. Yeah. I think that, that's interesting. When, does, when does, does the arrest is the first thing that topple the apple cart? Well, because of all of insanity with school and truancy, 
never going to school and all kinds of other shit. You know, people would show up at the house and I have a newspaper article. I think I was 17 years old in my phone of breaking into dairy barns, stealing fucking six packs of beer. What was the article? You want to read it? It's, what is it? it's like an, ara- it's like an yeah, arrest it's an report? Arrest, yeah, of me when I was 17 years old. We'll do it afterwards. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's great. It's a great story, too. What was uh, the story? Well, the story is we broke a couple of guys, a couple of me and a couple of guys were walking down the street in Baldwin, and we, we broke into Dairy Barn, and we, we grabbed a bunch of six-packs and ran, and an off-duty cop saw us do it. And they chased us. They caught them, but they didn't catch me because I, I dove into the river. I dove into the canal and fucking swam away from them. Right. But they ratted on me, and the cops were at my house probably an half hour, an hour later. You know, I ran home. I was soaking wet. And they busted you. Yeah. And so when, when does it turn into uh, the Coke bust? Well, the Coke, I, I assume at the same time, with 14, 15 years old, selling the mescaline, I started hooking up with this Colombian guy. I hooked up with this Colombian guy who was right in the same area where I was selling my mescaline. And he had, and he had the fucking greatest Coke in the world. How did you meet him? At a bar in Freeport. And, and you're uh, a teenager. Teenager. And he's like some Colombian cartel guy? Well, that's, that's, that's all they had back in the day. <laughs> Every fucking bar had some Colombian <laughs> dude. Right. You know, today, today on the streets, it's different. They have El Salvadorians and Ecuadorians. Back in the day, it was all Colombian dudes, man. And they were selling cocaine. You so, you, so you're a kid in the bar, known to sell masculine, dabble in some coke, and you hear he has it? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember how I initially got introduced to this guy, but that was my guy. I was buying shit from him probably every day or every other, probably every day. And the amounts just grew, and the amounts grew tremendously. How, how big did it get? Well, when I was 16 years old, I got busted with four pounds of cocaine. Oh, my God. On Grand Avenue. Who were you selling all this coke to? This guy that I was friends with in Freeport, his name was Billy. He was being set up by someone in Freeport who got arrested, a girl. Her name was Ruby. She was setting him up, not me. She didn't know me. But I'm not going to give a pound of cocaine to a guy and say, okay, I'll see you in a little while. How much is a pound of cocaine worth? Back then, I think it was like almost 20-something thousand dollars. Right. And you're fucking 15 years old. 15 years old. Yes. So I I would have to be there. I would get the pound of cocaine, sit in the car with him, and we'd pull into into Burger King on Grand Avenue. He would get out and make the sale, and I'd be in the car. And this happened four times. And it was a setup. We're selling the cops. And the last time, they, they arrested the coke dealer. They arrested me, this guy Mike, Billy, this guy Greg. We were all in a van. I had 10,000 hits of mescaline in my, in my pocket. Oh, my God. And I got, I got arrested for four A felonies. Well, so what were the felonies? A felonies, you know, controlled substance. Sales. You had Coke, you had mescaline, and, and how much Coke did you have on you? The pound? No. It, I didn't have anything on me. I had the mescaline on me. But, they had, they but had, the they sales had, of they, the cocaine right, right. were four separate sales within and, a matter of a couple of weeks. or I don't even remember the, the span it was, but it was a couple of weeks that these sales went on. They were setting us up. To, to put a huge case right, on Right, to you. put a big case on us. And what, what, did, they, what did they charge you with? Four counts of four A felonies. And what happened? 
Because I was 16 years old, I got a youthful offender. Thank God. Thank God is right. Because everybody, the Rockefeller law had just gone in place because they couldn't stop the movement of cocaine. What year are we talking about? 83, 84 around there. Incredible. The Rockefeller law went into place where they were giving everybody, everybody in the planet, zero, uh, three to life, five to life, six to life. So when you get out of jail after your three years, even though it's a nonviolent crime, you'd have parole forever so they can monitor you and keep the flow or, you know, because they'd come home and start selling drugs and go, you know, that's why they came up with that law. So so what did you get? You got charged as a youthful offender. What did you get? I think I did about uh, eight months in jail in the Nassau County Jail. With adults? Cost me 30-something thousand for a lawyer, too, and this is in the 80s. Did you have money lying all over I the place? Had money of, everywhere. Right. I mean, people were bringing me Rolexes. People were bringing... I had fucking money everywhere. I was actually giving my father money. He had a business, and I was able to... But he wasn't asking you about that? No. And you weren't going to school? No. So you're like this 15-year-old crazy coke dealer. <laughs> you, go, you have to do eight months in a Nassau County jail at, at 15, 16. How was that? It was fucked up. I was in a children's shelter before that, too. Well, what, do you, what happened then? Why, how did you wind up in a children's shelter? Well, I'm just saying, it led up to, like, 14 years old, I went to a group home, which was St. Mary's. Why, though? I don't remember. I don't remember. I was a fucking, I was a psychopath, man. I was completely, completely rebellion against everything in the world. Parents, my mother and father couldn't tell me anything. And whatever I felt like doing, whether it was jumping in a pool, kicking open a fucking bar door and robbing the place, whatever I was doing, I was getting caught out there for stuff. So my first time was like 14 years old. I was in a group home called St. Mary's. I don't remember how long I was there, but that's like being incarcerated. And then after that, I went to the children's shelter because I was involved. You know, when you're a minor, you're not going to district court. You go to family court. I was in a children's shelter. It's just like being in jail. You can't get out of there. What's it like to be in a place like that? It's hardcore because the younger the, younger the people, the black, Spanish, whatever they were, the younger they were, the fucking psycho. They're, they're just completely out of their mind. They got nothing to lose. Are you old or young for that place at 14? Same, pretty much the same age as everybody there. You can't be there. You have to be 15 or below. And do they fuck with you? Like, how do yeah. you get through it? Do you fight all you the time? To, you have to fight. You have to do something. You can't just, you know, they're always, always a challenge. Just like being in jail. Always a challenge. How did you go from the group home and the children's shelter back to your dad's? Every time they let you go. And your dad's like, all right, come home now. Well, he didn't say that. I don't was even he remember scared? what was, he said. Do you think he was scared I don't of even you? Remember, I don't remember interacting with my father. How about your mother? My mother threw me out when I was like 13, 14. I lived in Westbury. Originally Freeport, my mother, you know, my parents got divorced at 10. Oh, your, your stepfather my tried to kick the shit out of you? My mother remarried a fucking alcoholic. You know, I mean, there's other shit, there's, there's, there's stuff that led up to that. But this know? stuff is very important stuff, I think. Absolutely, that's probably why I, had, I ended up doing what I was doing, because of the asshole that my mother married. He was a fucking dick. Did you ever make peace with your mom? Yeah, absolutely. My mom's absolutely, 100%. Good. Um, Made peace with my dad. Is your dad still alive? He's dead. Your mom's alive? My mom's alive. So you're in uh, Nassau County Jail 
for selling pounds of coke and, and hundreds of barrels of mescaline. What is it like to be a child in jail? Back in the 80s, before the crack era hit, everybody in the jail was the size of fucking giants, literally. Well, you were a kid, too. I was that a doesn't kid, help. But I was also a big boy, too. I was a kid, and I was a big boy, and I was out of my mind. I really didn't give a shit. But it was a challenge. Somehow, someway, I ended up surviving in general population for almost the whole time I was in jail. Were you taken care of? Like, did you have to join some crew? Like, no. no. Were people to, looking out fight. for you? You had well, to fight. Just, I'm in jail. Let's just say I'm in the main building in Nassau County, E floor. Everybody in the fucking floor, they're all black or Spanish, mostly black, I remember. These guys, most of them had 12 years, 15 years, 30 years, 25 years they were getting. And I'm there doing a county bid. You know, and I'd be on the tier with these guys, and they'd send a white guy on the fucking tier, and the white guy would come running to me. Because all of these motherfuckers were like trees, I swear, they were so big. They, the white guy would come to me and say, dude, I can't help you out. You know what I mean? And I'd say two minutes later, he'd be banging and screaming on the door because they, they stripped him bare, took all his shit. I don't understand. He would come to you? You would go to him? Well, that, when, you're in, when you walk into a jail, you try to find someone that you can associate with. Right. You know, and you see a white guy on a tier with all black guys. It's only like 20 guys because there's eight, there's eight 20 cells. First five, a double, and the rest are singles. And that's how many people are on a tier. Everybody else doesn't interact with each other. So, I mean, he'd come to me and, you know, whatever, try to feel at home or whatever the fuck you want to call it. You know what I mean? Especially being in jail. It's not easy. I tell him, listen, I, uh, I'm trying to survive myself. Somehow, someway, I don't know whether it was my size, my looks, something about me that they didn't fuck with me. Right. I did fight plenty of times, but somehow, someway, they didn't fuck with me in jail. So you get out, you're 17 or 16? I got in and out so many times, I don't remember. Every year, I went in and out of jail four or five times. So you come out, you sell coke again, and you go back in? I don't know if I sold coke. I don't know what I did. I don't remember what happened after that. All I know is it was always involved in getting high somehow. Right. And there'd be fights or like just fucking crazy shit. But we're talking about right around this time is when Freebase started. We were Freebasing. I'd say 84, 85... Then I also was sentenced to Samaritan Village, which is a TC. Sure. I spent 11 months there. And this is all in your teen years? Yep. I spent 11 months up in Ellenville, New York, which is Samaritan Village, part of a sentence of something stupid that I did. But overall, it was nonstop, in and out of jail, in and out of jail. I've been in jail so many fucking times, I lost count. And... Would you say alcohol? You're, you're drinking, and, and when did you start freebasing? Right around when the song came out. Which song? Look White it up. Line? Look it up. White lines. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. Because when that song came you're out, you're impressed that I knew it was. You <laughs> <laughs> look on your face. Ticket the ride, White yeah. Line Highway. Well, that's when that's when it started. Right around that time. That's why they created. Base. It. Yeah, that's why they made the song. Right. Right around that time is when we started basing. Do you still like that song now? It's all right. Yeah, yeah it's a great right. song. Yeah. But, you know, Freebase was a different story. It wasn't the crack thing. It wasn't crack. It was Freebase. Please explain the difference. The difference between Freebase and crack is you can cook up 
We used to cook it up ourselves. You didn't buy it like that. You couldn't buy it. On you the buy street. coke, right? You buy cocaine. You put it in a coffee pot or in a little fucking Pyrex vial. You add baking soda to it and you boil it. And it would take the impurities out and leave you with a rock. So what's the difference between that and... Because you know who Freeway Ricky Ross is? He's this big L.A. crack kingpin who worked with uh, fucking... Rick uh, Ross, rapper Rick Ross? Different Rick Ross. Rick Rick Ross, the rapper, named himself after this drug dealer, Rick Ross, from the early 80s. And I had him on the show... And he said he called it Ready Rock, which basically was crack. And it was when they started cooking it with, with baking soda, right? Well, that's what we did. Okay. You couldn't go out and buy it like that yet. It wasn't on the streets. And, and, but the old Freebase, wasn't that with like ether and whatever? No, like, no how did that Richard was Pryor... afterward. Richard Pryor did that. I think he did like 86, 85. I don't even remember when he did it. But it was, you know, it seemed like, it seemed like a blur because the time that went by wasn't that much time. It was no. only a couple of years right. that Freebase and Crack took over. I think Crack started like 86, maybe. So when you're cooking up Freebase, you're not selling Coke? When I'm cooking Freebase, I'm, sell- I'm doing both. Okay. Doing both. Selling Coke, cooking it, You selling it as it. base or you selling it as powder? No, I wasn't selling base. I was smoking it. We were cooking it to smoke it. So explain again the difference between crack and base. Crackers, they use ammonia, they use gasoline, they use all types of things to cook it. I don't know how the process is done. I've never tried it, never done it. I smoked a ton of it. But all I know is when I smoked crack, from coming from smoking freebase, if I never experienced smoking freebase and I went right to crack, I wouldn't know the difference. Exactly. But you could smoke freebase. That's why I appreciate your expertise, John. I could probably <laughs> smoke freebase and have this conversation with you. Even though my jaw would be going from ear to ear, I would be able to have this conversation with you and actually maybe even look you in the eye. But once the crack started, I couldn't sit in the car with you. I'd be too fucking paranoid. I'd be bugging the fuck out. And I, could, I just couldn't. I'd have to keep on smoking and smoking and smoking and smoking. Every 10 seconds, I'd fucking smoke, 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 smoke. So when you started smoking bass, like how old are you at this point? 17, 16, 17. And, and are you just dealing or like when do you have to find, like when are you starting to look for work or other ways to make money? I, was, I remember I was working at a restaurant. I was working at a place in uh, Island Park called McQuaid's. It was, a, it was a restaurant. And I was traveling on my bicycle because <laughs> I wasn't driving from, uh, where the hell was I living? I was living in East Rockaway or Oceanside. And I was riding my bike back and forth every day to get to work between work and drugs and I mean you're asking me questions that I don't not that I don't confront these things but that whole era was a blur for me I was fucking stoned man if you can take a picture in your mind like go back right because it's fun I think there's a right it's like time travel right you know like and you remember like what can you what can you pull out of there well I remember I remember I would walk into the kitchen and I remember the two guys Troy and Steve that worked there okay and I would say you're up I would have, we'd have lines of cocaine on the number 10 cans in the shed outside. And we'd go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth all night long. And we'd fucking just sniffing coke and... And it was still fun. It was still fun. But you had done so many, you'd done a number of jail bids and, and all this fucking, you know, youth shelter, group home, right. all that. I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of baggage. A lot of baggage. I mean, there was a lot of jail. Because I do remember, I mean, 
my, I have I have eleven felony convictions. I have ten misdemeanor convictions, and that's with cop outs. So there was probably a hundred and fifty of them all together. Were all the felonies drug felonies? Mostly, they're all related to drugs somehow, or one way or another. They're all burglaries and, and assaults. I was out of my fucking mind. You know? When did you start burglaring? Crack. When crack took over, because that's what took, hooked me. When did that start? Just soon after that. 18, I guess. 18, 19. Do you remember the 18. first time somebody presented you with a rock of crack? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But I do know that I was in Far Rockaway buying it. Okay. So that's, that's, something. that's where I started. You know, I started and ended in Far Rockaway, and that was fucking, that was the scariest fucking shit show ever. And I, I feel like I remember you in meetings. I think that you're, you talk about, ha, you know, having money, like. Always having money. How did, how did you, you just stayed dealing in the whole time? Stealing. Well, during, Where listen, would you there, steal was a, from? there was a, there was a, when I was home at the house up until about 16 years old. My father owned a business, so he sold gasoline, and he repaired car. He had a tremendous fucking business, and it was piles and piles of cash. And I would, steal, I would steal money from him every day. And if it wasn't stealing from him, or if I was stealing from him, I would steal from both of them, my brother and my, my brother sold drugs. I would steal drugs and money from him. I would steal money from my dad. Always had fucking wads and wads and wads and wads of cash, always. By the time you're in and out of jail and, like, a problem is developing, does your brother know? No. Because I'm still a kid. It's still a fun thing, you know, until the crack took over. But they weren't involved then. That's when I, I was... I was you were on, gone. I was basically gone. Where were you living then? First place was Oceanside, Lynbrook, all in the area, out East Rockaway, I want to know as much as you can, because I do appreciate your point that it's fucking a million years ago and a lot of drugs right. ago, and I, I, I get that. Try to remember the transition from base to crack, and it's really the, the, the transition from fun to no fun. It's right around 17, 18 is when crack took over. I found myself in places that I, I, I didn't want to be. It's happened so fast with that drug. Then I may, I could tell you one day I was having fun and the next day it was over. I'd say 17, 18 is when I, tr- I jumped over that line. When did you start working with jukeboxes? When I got out of prison in 1991. What did you go to prison for? Stealing shit so I can get high. Where would you steal from? Everywhere. Okay. If I lived in a town. I lived in the five towns. Okay. And I'd rob every fucking store in the town. If it was man-made, I was getting in. Can you give us a good heist story? Incredible feat. I took 2,000 pairs of sneakers. Garbage bags full of sneakers. I would bring 10 or 20 of them to the fucking crack dealer and give them a bag of sneakers. <laughs> you're, giving, you're trading I'm sneakers trading for rocks. sneakers for rocks. And what did he do with the sneakers? Who the fuck knows? Right. <laughs> but one day I went there, and I had one pair left, and they were on my feet, and it was fucking snowing. And I gave him those sneakers. And, it was, and I wasn't driving. I was walking. That's the shit that I remember. You know what I mean? Now that, that was the hardcore shit. But that was way past the fun part. It was all over. But I was robbing constantly. 
you know, I would go on these three, four, I remember going on a six-day binge once. I would steal shit, whatever, whatever it was. Food, batteries, fucking, I, I remember robbing the same places over and over again. I would go on a four, five, six-day binge. I would sleep for three days, and don't ask me how I found apartments. I would steal money so I can get an apartment or a place to stay. I would sleep for three days. I would wake up, and I would have to steal food so I can eat. Were you on yourself, by yourself? By myself. And I would have to steal food, and after three days, or two or three days, I would say, that wasn't so bad. And I would go back and do it again. Yeah. And whether, you know, 50, 100, 200, whatever was in my pocket was going to get that shit to get me started to stop me on robbing every fucking thing on the planet just to get more. How often did you get busted for, for burglary, for robbing people? I've been, I sat in the precinct one time and they did this thing called closeouts where they ask you, you sign a waiver saying we're going to charge you for the burglary you're here for. You're going to tell us the ones you did, but we, you will not be charged, and it's a waiver. You, we can't charge you with them. It doesn't matter if he took a million dollars. But it's basically so they can know they, they can, can close, close their the case. Books. Right. They can close their case, right. So I did 65 closeouts one night with them in, in the 4th Precinct in, in Nassau County. Were they like buying you a sandwich for your good, good times? No, they weren't buying me a fucking thing. I don't even know if I got McDonald's. Right, right. When did you start thinking that you might have a fucking problem? Definitely way past that. I mean, listen, all I know is I went, on, I went into the fourth dimension of fucking crack smoking probably instantly when I started smoking crack because I already had experience with using Freebase and I was doing drugs and whatever the fuck else I was doing. Break and, it down for it, anybody that's never... I, I've only smoked crack a well, few it times. it happens so fast. I mean, you're, in a matter of three months, you could lose everything you own. You could lose your house, your kids, your wife, your children. You could lose everything in your fucking life in a short, short period of time. And, and I, I can't tell you. I could just... T I, I, see, I, I see all the burglaries. I know the places I robbed. I know the places I got high. I know the elevator shafts I sat in. I see all that stuff in my head, but I don't know times and dates because it was a blur. I was fucking whacked out of my brain. I was numb. There was no fun. I was fully addicted. And I was hoping, that, you know, I remember getting pulled over on Seagirt Boulevard in a Ford Fairlane that I had bought on the fucking street for a couple of hundred dollars. Stolen license plates, no registration, no insurance, no nothing. The car didn't even have brakes in it. While the cops pulling me over, I'm stopping it in reverse. I had to spin the fucking tires backwards to make the car stop. You're laughing. This is what. So I'm sitting there, and the guy's writing me 12 tickets. While he's writing me 12 tickets, I got my girlfriend in the car. I don't know who the fuck she was. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back to the cop, and I said, listen, I'm going to go over to the store. My girlfriend's going to sit in the car, and I'll be right back. I went over, and I got more crack, and I was smoking it in the front seat <laughs> while they were writing me tickets. Did he know? I was hoping they were going to find out because I needed a break, but they didn't. It was different in the 80s, man. When you were stoned or drunk, they didn't really take you. They didn't rest you for... It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing, right? No, I get it. But it's like I've heard you share often about 30 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, like when, when did, when's the first time you went to a meeting? My first meeting was in Rockville Center, 1991, in February 1991, on my last time in jail. And what did they fucking charge you with the last time you went in? Burglary. 
And when I, I've also heard you share about returning to Rockaway, like you started in Rockaway and you finished in Rockaway. That was the last time. On my last, uh, the last time I was getting high was in Far Rockaway. Because I lived in the five towns. Cedarhurst is fucking two miles away. Every time, you know, the last couple of years I was. So before my... you got sober, you were not, like, you were, all you were doing was stealing and dealing. Stealing, dealing, and getting high. Right. But the Johnny Jukebox empire didn't start until after you got sober. My first sponsor in Narcotics Anonymous, that was the meeting I went to in, uh, in Rockville Center. I don't think I met him there, but I met him shortly after that, was in, in the jukebox business, in the game business. His name was Greg. He had HIV, and he died from HIV. And it's, 19, it's 2022, and I'm still in the business with his brother. With his brother, Greg's yes. brother. Yes, So when you go to prison the last time, are you like, I have a fucking drug problem? Definitely. And were you like, and, and I need to do something about it? Well, every time I went to prison, I wasn't being arrested. arrested. I, they were basically rescuing me from killing myself because I was so far gone. It was just, there was nothing left of me. So when, because I mean, I've heard you say so many beautiful things around recovery. I mean, the amount of things I've heard you talk about is, it's a lot of things I've heard you say over the years. Been through a lot of stuff, man. When... Did that become interesting to you? Like, when did you, when did a solution, did you relapse again after you went in 91? I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown. 1991, I came home from the last bed, and uh, my first meeting was in Rockville Center. But before that, I mean, I think I, I was living in, I was living in Far Rockaway. I was living in Far Rockaway with this guy, Stan. I remember I was drinking myself. I was drinking quarts of quarts of vodka at the time. I mean, I can rem when I came home, I stopped basically when I was in 91. I was about 22, 23. The insanity, or it wasn't, I, I didn't stop completely, but I had some type of remembrance after 91. What do you mean? Well, that's when I came in. Remembrance how, though? By coming into the program. It's funny, John, because it's like, you and I bullshit all the time, you know what I mean? And I, I should have been able to figure out that you got sober so young. But it never occurred to me that you were so young when you got sober. So when you see, I mean, there's a bunch of kids that come in. It's tough. Do you see, but do you see yourself? Yes. Like Jay. You know, Jay, Jay is much older than you were when you came in. You know, you were a fucking kid, 21 years old. You went to prison six times before you're fucking 22. Th 35 times. Before you're 22? Yes. 35 times? 35 All times. burglaries. Assault, burglary, attempted murder. Attempted? What's the worst jail situation you ever had? They're all the same. There was nothing that stood out? I had an attempted murder charge. I was working security and, and in a restaurant called Shenanigans in Oceanside. After work, I was security. You were up to shenanigans? <laughs> I was up to shenanigans. My dishwasher, Javier, was sitting at the bar. I'm sitting next to him. There's girls across the bar. He's drinking. We're drinking 151 rum. He got blown out of his shorts, and he started talking shit. I said, I'm going to call you a cab. Cab pulled up. I was, I was basically carrying him outside because he was so drunk. He gave me an uppercut to my nose, and I lost it. I slammed him down on the pavement like a rag doll. He bled out of his ears. Nassau County cops came and arrested me for attempted murder because it's a fatal sign when he bleed from the ears. Did Javier survive? 
Javier got out of his coma two months later, woke up and took off from the hospital. You ever see him again? No. They had to drop the charges. Why? Because... Because he left. Because he left. There's no case. Thank God. Thank God is right. Because the county, t- the county tried to pick it up because they had so many other charges. They tried to pick it up and they would have tried to serve me with that. And there's no, no jail situation that stands out in your head more than any other jail situation. I did the shock program, which is a military program. What's that? That's a drug That's diversion it. thing? Well, it's, it's in jail. You're in jail. You can't get out. But you're in a program where they, you, it's like a drill instructor fucking screaming in your face every day. How'd you do with that? I did. Well, I rebelled. I rebelled. I rebelled against everything and everyone. But I made it through. I, I got thrown out, and then I went back, and I ended up getting through. And when you show up at Narcotics Anonymous in, in 1991... Are you like fucking desperate? Are you? What? what how did you get there? You get out of I prison. Get, I get out of jail in Feb, uh, in February. I was upstate in the prison in the prison system. They, I left with forty dollars in my pocket and a stupid looking fucking polyester suit that they give you to you know because so you can they can know you're a prisoner. <laughs> whatever. I didn't know they they don't they give you these clothes to leave with. So I, I was paroled to the Salvation Army in Hempstead on Clinton. I get there at like 11 o'clock at night because that's what time I got back. I knock on the door and it's too late. The guy says, we don't have any intake at night. So now I'm sitting on the sidewalk in Hempstead crying my eyes out because I, I just was beaten to death. I was beaten to death with jail, drugs, and the last fucking tornado of 10 years of my life, whatever I tore apart, with some hope. And they told me no. And I had nowhere to go because the bridges were all burnt for 10 years before that. The bridges, there was nobody to call. Meaning your family, your nobody, friends. There was nobody and nothing I could do. I had nowhere to go. I had no idea what to do. I ended up shortly after that living with my son's mother. I also have a son who's, who was born in 89. So you had a son at that. So was that the girlfriend who you didn't know who yes. it was? <laughs> <laughs> well, I met her on the streets of Far Rockaway. Are you still in touch with that son? My son's in jail. He just got arrested again. For a couple, what? A couple months ago for assault. How old is he now? He's 33. And are you still, you're, you're not in touch with his mother. I also have a son that was born in, in, in 84. I have a son that was born in the early to mid 80s who was adopted that I never met. And you have five kids now. And I have five. So that would be seven. Lucky seven. Yeah. Probably about 13 abortions in between. Well, you're a very fertile man. Very fertile man. <laughs> with all them drugs? It's amazing. It's a miracle. Imagine all the kids you would have had if you hadn't smoked fucking rock. Holy shit. So we're talking about 91, and you're, you're a kid. You've had two kids. This is heavy duty. It is heavy. Right? Yeah. So, like, when does it start? Because, like, honestly, on a day-to-day basis that I see you, I get two things from you. One that every day is a gift, and two, that this shit is heavy duty. When does it start occurring to you what it is? Because when you talk about your life of crime, you don't, you're pretty detached from it, right? It's burglaries, it's a fucking blur, it's crack, it's fucking free base, it's mescaline, it's weed, whatever. But it's, it's, it's like... Other things too. I mean, I mentioned it before we started the recording that I got involved with some people in Brooklyn also. You know, that. thank God, I'm 100% Italian. Thank God I didn't get this sucked into that also because of the vending business. 
Well, what was that about? The company that I worked for, it was basically a wash company. You know, they were washing money. There was a group of people. But that's Brooklyn. after it was done. That's after prison was done. Yeah, that was after 91, yeah. That's when I basically, right after that, somewhere shortly after that, I started in the vending business. I want to know, though, at that point, did because you have a heaviness and a lightness to you all the time. So, like, when you first got sober, did that start to come out or did it take a while? You're incredibly eloquent when you talk about what you've been through. You're incredibly eloquent when you talk about your recovery, what you know, what you don't know, what you've learned. When did you start to think about your addiction in ways that were like that? Well, the first experience in 91 when I first walked into Narcotics Anonymous, I surrounded myself with the people in the program. I was in individual therapy. I was in group therapy. I was doing fucking three meetings a day because that was my life. Did you want it? I had no choice. I had no other, I had no other direction to go. I had nobody to call. I had nothing. I had nothing. Nothing. Zero. All scorecards read zero. I, I, had, I had no choice, man. And I guess... But you, I, had, but you hadn't done it up till then. So what was different? Because drugs and alcohol just weren't fucking working anymore. No shit. The fun had stopped a long time before that. There was no fun involved. And listen, just by walking into that meeting, I guess that was God. Because I didn't change. Nothing changes if nothing changes. I didn't change a fucking thing. All I did was stop drinking and drugging. But that guy that walked into that room or that guy that was you heard about before, I was that guy. I just wasn't polluting myself with mind-altering substances. And, and, and you meet up with this Greg guy, and what, when did you go to Brooklyn? Right after that, in that year, 91. Started working for that company. And it was all like friends of our kind of thing. Yes. For me being a, a Jew who works in the deli to say he, friends of ours well, is a big would, stretch. He's a Jew also. Okay. My sponsor was a Jew. Okay. And yeah, basically, yeah. And watching, I was watching money because I was a gorilla. What does that mean? Because you were gigantic. I was fucking jacked up from being in jail. And they were like, you were security for them? Basically, yeah. And did you have any fear like about getting involved in that kind of shit in sobriety or like was there temptation there? Was there was there drugs and alcohol around at that point? Well, my mentality was probably as a, of a four-year-old. So none of that meant, meant anything to me. But was it there? Are you I were, thought I was a big shot. You were kind of a big shot in a weird <laughs> I, way. I was, yeah. yeah. And we'll seeing all of that money, seeing opportunity. So what made you not go towards that? I don't know. Thank God. God... It's got to be God. Self-preservation in some weird absolute, form. Some, I, can't, I can't tell you how. Because the first thing that happens is they trust a guy, and all of a sudden they do a background check on you to see where your roots come from, and then they, you know, they start throwing things your way like work, specific work. And that didn't happen. And you passed. I didn't pass on the work. No, I mean you passed the test to get the work. Well, absolutely, because the roots go back to where they want them. But because how did God intervene? I couldn't, I, would, I, I didn't have the ability to be able to do it, to intervene. All I know is I was winging my life because I had no experience in any type of life other than drugs and distortion and delusion and corruption and fucking shit. So how did we go from there to here? 
Like, what has this path been in your recovery? Like, how have you, how have you managed? Like, I mean, one of your great catchphrases is that you don't know, right? Like, 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 well, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's the thing that's for today. Every day I learn that I just don't know. I mean, I hear things. I'm able to sit in a meeting today and hear everything that's said in a room, every, every word that's said in a room. And I identify with myself. Your story, your words, and your stories with your daughter, your stories going someplace. All the things that people say I relate to in my own way. I identify with everybody now. What? It's, it's like magic. I don't understand how to explain it. What I want to know, though, is because I've also heard you talk about putting down crack and putting down alcohol but not being sober. Here we go back. We're going back to 91. I started in Narcotics Anonymous, and nothing changes if nothing changes. I'm in individual therapy. I'm in group therapy. All I did was stop drinking and drugging. I was lying, cheating, and stealing. I was gambling. I was having sex with prostitutes. I was doing everything we do. I just wasn't drinking and drugging. I wasn't altering my mind other than other things. I was making a ton of money. I was buying things. I was whatever I was doing. High on all this shit. High on the world. Because I was like a little kid. I didn't know how to manage anything. And I stayed sober for eight years. I went out for two days. I came back in and did it again. Surrounded myself with the same people that I've been with. You, know, you went just, out on crack for the two days. Yes. And then the whole way through, you're, you're having sex with prostitutes and you're gambling. What was Stealing. the gambling? Gambling was out of control. Like, what was, what was your thing? I was doing scratch-offs, $3,000 a week. That's insane. $4,000 a week. What's the most you ever won on a scratch-off? $5,000 once. Was that, really, that was really good, right? <laughs> I, scr- I did scratch-offs so much, I won 500 a day. No way. Absolutely. And how much would you spend to get the 500? Sometimes 2,000. When's the last time you did a scratch off? April 24th, 2012. And how how sick were you around gambling? What could you describe gambling? Just like you just like drinking and drugging. Same attitude, same behavior, same thinking. I mean, I don't know much about gambling. Like I I, I never gambled too much and uh, our audience has a lot of gambling addicts in recovery and out of recovery did you gamble like a fiend before you stopped drinking and smoking crack no so it, when did it stop when did that in, pop in up? recovery do you remember how that popped up at all just by doing a couple of scratch-offs i was never really into gambling heavily like that i would go to atlantic city on occasion spend every fucking nickel and, ha- and drive home at four in the morning with not a penny in my pocket but that was once every five months, every four months. It wasn't all the time. And so you, you do scratch-offs, and you just get that fucking... When, did you, you can't get high from losing, though. You can't get high from not winning anything. <laughs> is it the excitement? Laid out. Well, Gamblers Anonymous is like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, The worst possible thing that can happen to a, ga- a compulsive gambler, which I am, is winning. Right. When you win... You think you're the uh, you think you're the top of the world, grandiosity. <laughs> Buying fucking mink coats and and trips to fucking here and there it never happens. Never was was like ninety percent of your gambling uh, scratch offs though. I'd say about seventy percent of it. Rest of it slot machines. Really? Yeah. And slots in Atlantic City and stuff. Not Atlantic City, up in Yonkers Racetrack. Right. 
And that and that became a compulsion. That became a compulsion. I would do it every every um, every day with the scratch offs. The slot machines would be like once a week, twice a week. And what about uh, the sex? Happy endings, three times a week. And where would you go? Like these massage parlors? Well, I started off at a massage parlor. It was in Queens, and I ended up going to the same place for seven straight years. So I was having a relationship, basically an affair. I would go there for three hours at a time with the same girl. And she, did you kiss her? Everything. Okay, so it wasn't just happy it was, it was. It was just an affair. It was an affair. Right. And at what point in your recovery are you like, this is a fucking problem? Either of those things. Doing my fourth step. Doing your fourth step. I was writing my fourth step out. And your, is your sponsor the, the jukebox guy? No. No, he died. He died. Did you do steps with him? No. How long did it take you to do the steps? The last relapse, which is coming up on 13 years next month. And that was 2000 when? 10. 2010. New Year's Eve, 2010. How many relapses between 91 and 2010? All right, let's, let's, let's make it a little easier. Please. It's, it's Thank 32 you. years. Yeah. February. I've probably altered my mind with a drug or alcohol probably 12 days in that much time. Do you remember any of the relapses really well? The last one. What happened? I was living dirty, doing everything wrong that we normally do as addicts and alcoholics. I was down in Long Beach delivering Vicodins that I buy in Brooklyn for 50 cents, selling them in Long Beach to a girl for $9 a piece. Wow. Two or three times a week I would meet her, or two or three times a month I would meet her to sell her Vicodins. While I was down there, I met up with an old friend, actually a guy that I met in Narconics Anonymous back in 91 at that first meeting. And I ended up getting high with him for two days. How did it come up, though? Because you hadn't done you hadn't. No, I haven't done it. So, like, how did it, and it was, how long was he But clean? there was no defense because I wasn't really. You had no spiritual fucking foundation. I had no God. I had no steps. I had no big book. I had nothing under my belt. All I did was not drink a drug. And he didn't have any clean time when you ran into him. I don't think so. Like, because you hadn't, how long had it been since you fucking smoked crack? Probably eight or, eight or nine years before that. But you're selling Vicodin. But uh, selling, you know, everything. Everything and anything. What else were you selling? I wasn't selling drugs other than the Vicodins. What else were you selling in general? Well, I was buying swag, stealing shit. I'm, you know, I'm in the jukebox business, so it's like... Paint a picture, because I've never been it's, in the jukebox business. It's adrenaline. I'm making $1,000 a day, cash. So money is all over the place. I'm fucking gambling my ass off. I'm doing happy endings three times a week. I'm married with five kids. You know, now I'm married 25 years, so all of this stuff is a lie. I'm living a life of a lie. Nothing changes if nothing changes. I didn't change anything. I didn't change the guy that I brought in the rooms in 1991. So I just didn't drink and drug because it brought me to jail. So what happened with this relapse that changed anything? Because well, something first, did change. First of all, I wasn't married and didn't have kids on the last event, but I was involved with the girl. and I didn't have any kids. I didn't own a house. You know, I was basically in the, biz- in the, in the jukebox business, and uh, I don't know what I was doing. I was just living. I thought I was living. Boating, I owned a boat. You know, I've been, I owned a boat all my life, just about, you know. One day, some of my beach friends brought this girl out, and she- <laughs> they left her at the beach with me that day. 
I brought her to my house. I lived at Guy Lombardo Estates. I lived in this fucking mansion on the water in Freeport. And that was it. That was 25 years ago. What I want to know, though, is with that story, with the dude, when you're selling Vicodins and you relapse again, and that's when uh, things started to change, how did, how did that even happen? Well, I ended up, like I said, I was living dirty, so it was nothing to prevent me from getting high. Right. And it, and it presented itself. But you had a few years of abstinence, so there was like, right. at least, I'm sure you were like, fuck. Like, I'm sure you wanted to do it, and then it's like, fuck. Oh, well, I didn't plan it, but I was down there, and it came up for whatever reason. He brought it up, I brought it up, let's get some coke, or whatever the fuck we were, th- I don't know what we, I don't know what we talked about. But all I know is I ended up smoking it for two fucking days. I took a hit of fucking crack every 10 seconds for two straight days. And my wife never experienced that. And I'm in a dirty business. Well, not dirty business, but I'm in, I'm in the ghetto every day. Basically in the neighborhoods that most people don't go in, collecting money. And uh, I disappeared. I disappeared for two days, and my wife has never experienced that. Now I'm married at the time. This is 13. So I'm married about 12 years. And I have all of these kids now at home, even, and they're small. And she's never experienced, she, she called every agency in the fucking world trying to find me. I turned my phone off. I was smoking crack, I couldn't face the world. I couldn't look at anybody, I was on paranoia, whacked out of my brain, just like in the past. So after the two days, what happens? The second day I turned my phone back on to check my messages and, and, the, and she had all the cops looking for me. Every agency on the fucking planet. Right. Suffolk County Police. She thought you were dead. Suffolk County Police. She thought I was dead, right? They pinged me down in Long Beach. Somehow, someway, like eight or nine of my friends, because I had a lot of friends, found my van on the street in front of the building that I was at, and they were kicking the tires on my van to set off the alarm. So I look out the window, or the sliding doors on his balcony, which is up on the sixth floor, and I look out and I see them all out there. Now I'm bugging the fuck out because I'm stoned out of my mind or cracked out of my brain and I'm not going to face them. And I ended up calling her, I guess, or whatever. I don't know, probably end of that day, whatever it was. I tell you, when I looked out, looked out that window and I saw them and I looked out in the parking lot, I was ready to jump. I was ready to jump off that balcony. Because it's like, fuck this. Yeah, I mean, because I'm letting down the people that I love, you know what I mean? My wife, who's never experienced this, And in all the years, because you had years and years of fucked up living, of evading, like spiritual consequences. You paid material consequences for your your offenses over and over and over again. But in that moment, you saw what you had done. Yeah. And you saw where you were at. So like when you went home, did you apologize? Did you go to a meeting? How how did you start walking this righteous path? I met my wife at the diner. In Freeport, the Imperial Diner, that second day. I, and I fucking drove there, and I was out of my mind. My buddy that I got smoked crack with gave me a fucking Oxycontin, like a 40 or something like that. And I've never tried those before. And I was like fucking stoned out of my mind. I met her. We sat there. I talked You to took her, it just to come down on the Just crack. to come off of the coke. What, else, what had you taken over the years to come off of it? Nothing. 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 Just drank. I think about that now, what torture that was. I didn't even drink. <laughs> yeah, it's so no, I didn't drink. Wow. I didn't drink. I you didn't stopped, take benzos, I stopped nothing. drinking in 89. My last drink was in 89. I didn't drink anything. And I wish I would have because I would have probably maybe had some more fun. I'd never, I just stopped, I just smoked crack. That's all I did. It's crazy. 
I couldn't. I mean, nothing like, to come down. Yeah, I mean, terrible. Whenever I did coke, I would be like, "You have Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, whatever." I I wouldn't do it. Like I was like, I would not do it. Right. Anyway, please. So you take the fucking Oxy Forty and you go meet your wife at the Imperial Diner. After that, I drove home. I remember fucking all over the road. I was in the dirt all over. I got home. Why'd she stay with you? I don't know why. She needed to see me get home. She was in another car. I was in my van. I guess she needed to see me get home because I was, I was fucking whacked out of my brain. And you're in your 30s. Yeah. And you have five kids with this woman. This was 13 years ago. No, I was 40-something. And do you remember when you started working this program in a way that you actively started, actually started to change? Well, it was New Year's Eve that I got high, which lasted two days into, the, into New Year's Day. And I think the 6th is my clean date. Basically, January. I don't remember getting high after that. I don't know what happened, but January sixth is my clean date, and uh, my first meeting was at Dinosaurs in Sayville. And I asked this guy Bob to sponsor me, and whatever the fuck he told me, he told me call me at three o'clock every day. And I think do I, I know him. Bob? You might you might know him. Anyway, so fucking when does the light go on, John? Well, so after a couple of months of not calling this sponsor and you know making meetings every day at Bayport and wherever else in the area, Holbrook, whatever. Did you go because your wife was like, you better fucking go? Like, what made you go every well, day? Well, because I've been in meetings my whole life. I've been in the Anonymous, and whether it was not, before that, it was Narcotics Anonymous. I did 15, 18 years in Narcotics Anonymous. Did you have to go to meetings when you were a kid and all those group home, jail situations? No. Okay. There was no meetings ever. Right. Never. I Until never 1991. Until 91. So you were like, this is a place I know I can go every day. Right. I mean, it helped me. Whatever, whatever it did for me before I started working the program the program's way, it still helped me. Sure. You know, even though I wasn't working the program according to the program. After a couple of months, I was sitting in the, meet- in the front row like I always did at Bayport, and this girl, uh, Kathy, was sharing, I remember, and she fucking, I shredded her in my mind. And... By the time she was done, she blew me away. I would always share at a meeting, and after the meeting, some guy came up to me, his name is Eddie, came up to me and he says to me, he says, uh, do you even know what the first step means? And I told him, I said, yeah, I can't now, mind me, I'm in the fucking program 18 years now. I said, yeah, I can't drink, I can't drug, just like everybody else answers. And he says, that's not what it means. He says, you're gonna do it whether you want to or not. He proceeded to tell me really what it meant. And then the second thing he told me, he told me a bunch of shit, but the things that I heard that night was, how soon do you want to get better? That's the guy that started taking me through the steps. Did he say that? How soon do you want to get better? Yeah. And what did you say? How soon do you want to get better? I said, I want to get better now because I knew I was very sick. You know, according to me doing the happy endings, the gambling and all the other, I'm filling, I'm filling the void with everything. But it was the, re- the crack relapse that reset the clock on right. everything. Definitely. And I'm so happy it happened. Because if it didn't, I wouldn't be here with today. So after he started, you know, now I'm procrastinating. I'm reading, you know, like we talked about the 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 uh, attention deficit that I had in the beginning. I couldn't I couldn't comprehend shit. Too much noise in my head, moving too fast, just my just too much energy. Money. My life is money. I'm making money. I'm in the fucking vending business. So I bought it on C D. You know, he said, You gotta read the book, man. You gotta read the book. And he would tell me like every other day, he says, if you don't fucking open that book and read that book, you're going back to a drink. 
and I was hearing everything he was saying. Even though I wanted to kill the fucking guy, I was hearing everything he was saying. He said, I'm self-over riot. You're constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself. And I was all of the above. So, I mean, um, now, when did it start clicking in that it was true and that you needed to do something to not be that way? When I met this guy, when he started to explain it to me, because he was sponsoring this other guy, his name was Petros, right? This guy was on fire. He was telling me, Eddie's saying, this guy's on fire. He's in the book. He's doing this. He's doing. And I love this guy, this guy, Pet. He was funny as hell. I would see him every day at meetings because he would go into the same meetings. And I was just like this, la da 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 because I'm making an asshole full of money. You know, my attitude is like a little fucking boy. I want what I want when I want it. And it's like, who cares about anything else if I'm making money? Right. I'm making money. I'm providing for my family. I bought a fucking house. I got five kids. I got a wife. I got boats, cars. You know what I mean? This is my, att- my attitude. But I had no God. No God. And you probably didn't have any real satisfaction. Satisfaction? I, I, I share that in meetings now. I mean, I'm making $1,000 a day, every fucking day of the year. And I have really minimal expenses. So I have all the money in the world that I want to buy anything I want. But I have no money. And you can't have good sex. You can't have a good fucking meal. You can't have nothing with satisfaction unless you have God. Right. So I'm going through the steps now. I'm in Bayport's my home group. I started, you know, now if you're not talking about the solution, you're a fucking asshole, just like I explained it this morning. And I left there because everybody was an asshole. I started going out to Mariches, Center Mariches the Barn at 6.45, and I was going every day. And I'm going through my steps. You know, he's got me right now to fourth step, fifth step. I remember giving him, I was over at Acampora in, uh, in Blue Point. I handed him a cheat sheet for the fourth step because I was doing my fourth step, you know, on, in the book, it says Mr. Brown and the resentments and, you know, and, my, and all of these fucking things that don't make any sense. You say the meaning, you say it's so funny. You say, it says Mr. Brown is fucking banging. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, banging my wife. Yeah, and I don't get any of that shit, you yeah. know, according to the book. Yeah, so yeah. I, the cheat sheet gives you that fourth column. Was I dishonest? You know, all the stuff, it makes it easy for an idiot. Well, it's very helpful. You know, it's very helpful. <laughs> yes. So I show it to him. He says, yeah, sure, you could use that. Because in the beginning... I didn't have a problem with alcohol. I haven't drank in fucking 30-something years. I needed to use something like that, too. Like, just because it seemed like such a, like an alien thing to figure out what I was doing. Right. I needed the, the cheat sheet, too. Anyway, what are you saying? I wanted to change the word alcohol on the first step. And he says to me, this program works perfect just the way What did it you is. want to change it to? Everything but alcohol. Right. Because I knew that the solution was in, in AA. You know, there's a lot of sobriety in AA. And if anybody knows anything about anonymous programs, NAHA, AA, the sobriety is in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's my new change. I'm in AA now. I wanted to change that word. He says it works perfect just the way it is. Leave it the fuck alone. So my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. Even though I haven't drank in 32 years, I'm still... It works. That's what works. It's like when in Rome, you, you fucking do it. That's what I do, this, I do the same Absolutely. thing. I do exactly the same thing. So I'm listening to the big book, driving my van around, still in the same mode, you know, buying swag, you know. And, and now things, I'm catching on to things. What I'll is buy, swag exactly? I buy a fucking cordless drill on the street for $20 from a guy that he just stole from fucking some hard-working dude down the road. Right. You know, and I'll hear his 20 bucks. He, he's going to go smoke crack. I got a new drill, and I think I got over. Right. 
So mind you, like things that started to happen, like I'm standing online at CVS over in fucking Holbrook and I'm waiting for a prescription for my son and I got two grand in my pocket and I make money every fucking day and I'm stealing hand sanitizer and I said, what the fuck am I doing? So now I'm starting to catch on to the things that I'm doing wrong. Before it never affected me because I love stealing shit. Right. I love to get over. Right. Now because you're better when you can do that. Everybody else is an idiot. Right. And, you're, and you can do this thing. Yeah. Right. No, it's exciting. I remember I used to go to the supermarket and steal like a golden pepper and walk out and be like, the golden pepper. <laughs> and it was like Indiana Jones just for the, you know, because I just could do because. that. Yeah. I would just love because. that. I would love that. You know, I get it. I, I, yeah, I live to steal. Sometimes I needed to and sometimes I didn't need to. But I really liked the fact that I could do that because right. I was better right. than everybody else because I could do it. So you fucking have two grand and you steal the fucking hand sanitizer. I steal hand sanitizer and it fucking just ate me up. It ate me up. And during this process now, I'm doing the happy endings. I'm doing the scratch-offs. And I'm sitting at the gas station by my house doing set for life. So I probably did fucking 20 of them already. And now I'm writing out my fourth step. And all of a sudden I said, this don't fucking feel right. That night when I was sitting at that gas station, I went to Gamblers Anonymous and I never stopped going. You still go? I'm John. I'm a compulsive gambler. So wait, when? Where, that was did, April 24th. Actually, it was before that because I own video games. I'm in the jukebox business. I was in a bar, one of my locations, and I bet a guy $20 on the golf game, so I had to change my date. I didn't intentionally gamble because I don't do that kind of gambling, but I changed my date because I wanted to be truthful. So you're scratching off win for lives. And it occurs to you, this is a fucking problem. This is something wrong. And I need to go to GA, because fucking AA isn't going to do it for this. Well, I'm working. I'm in AA, and it's starting to change my right. life. Or you wouldn't have wound up at GA. I wouldn't had, have right. wound up at GA, because all of a sudden, things were different now for me. I was looking and hearing and seeing, like, the, like stealing the hand sanitizer. So I went to GA. And did you feel at home when you got there? It was Gamblers Anonymous. They convinced me that I was a compulsive gambler, and I'm a fucking compulsive gambler. <laughs> Right. I get it. And what about the sex? The sex thing was another thing. I worked it out through therapy. I used to do TV boxes, and I still do. I don't know if you know what they are. They're, you know, they're, they're internet boxes where you can stream anything in the world for free. And it involves a lot of porn, a lot of free porn. And I was watching this fucking porn, and it's a trigger for me to watch porn and happy endings. So I discussed this with my therapist, because my therapist is a fucking magician. Well, she's the greatest. And I got over it with her. I started to discuss this situation. And uh, that's been fucking seven or eight or nine years, whatever the hell it's been, that I haven't done that either. No porn. Well, porn is on occasion. I mean, but it does trigger me. It makes me think about others, but it doesn't. I don't obsess over it. So no, no fucking uh, sex workers. Right. There's no more happy endings. No end. happy endings. It's endings. been long. It's been Any long. massage without happy endings. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I could do a massage now even then. It's just, you know. What's more triggering, porn or the massage without the happy ending? No, I've I only done a couple of massages without a happy ending in my life. I did a massage with a happy ending once. You did? I did. I was in uh, Chinatown. You, in, ready, you uh, ready to go back? <laughs> yeah, it's on Grand Street. So fucking, because there was a guy I work with that loved happy endings. And uh, he's like, and I had never, you know. I had never, exciting. I'd never done anything. And I went to the masseuse, and I don't know, it was like, 
I like wanted her to fall in love with me. Like I want, I thought, I thought, <laughs> I thought she was gonna fucking fall in love with me. I wanted, I wanted her to hold my hand. <laughs> so right. I, you know, and she was all business. You right. know what I'm saying? Of course. She was, and I, I left there feeling like I couldn't even believe that it happened. I never did it again. I didn't feel particularly anything about it. You right. know what I mean? But I just wanted to see that it could happen, and it could. So. But that's how that's how my experience was. Experience. When I first walked into the door of the place that I was going. You know, I found a tip place. They're on every fucking corner in Flushing. Okay, and I went, that, I went there for like six or seven years to the same girl. The first time she had her clothes on, she's massaging me. You know, and first I take a shower. I sit on the table. She massages me. She turns me over. She jerks me off. Then after the 35th time, she's completely naked. You know, now we're fucking... Now we're doing everything. Now I'm there three hours every other day. Every other day I'm there three hours. She don't even ask for money anymore. You know, when it's like I'm having an affair. Same girl for years and years and years. When and did years. she stop asking for money? Probably after a couple, like two years. And did you ever mention that? To her? Yeah. Did you ever talk, I, I you talk to her? I would try to give all? her money and she'd say, get out of here. Because she was enjoying it like I was. Because we were, we it was were, an affair. We were intimate. Right, right. Wasn't me just going in there and exploiting her. Okay, so you get out of gambling with therapy. You've given up the sex. Is it through that and the steps that you have a psychic change? Well, that's all part of it. Because to me, the sex, the gambling, the food, the shopping, there's a whole list of shit. I mean, I could tell you about things. I have like 60 watches at home, fucking 90 pairs of sneakers. There's this other, there's a whole lot more. Shopping is a, is a, it's, it's deep. It's deep when it comes to addiction. But that shit doesn't stop you the way all this other stuff does. It's the same thing, though. It's the same feeling. And, and it's just this empty more. I need more of everything. It says it in the book. I grab for more of everything, never feeling I have enough. And at what point do you think you could look back... Because obviously now you lead with this stuff. You know what I mean? Like when you speak at a meeting, you speak about this stuff because it was the final hurdles, right? To, to get to a place where you're in the solution, basically. And where you can... When's the first time you, you sponsored somebody? Uh, I think it's got to be seven years ago, eight years ago. And was that, was that uncomfortable first time? Well, they didn't know what I was doing just like anybody else. You know, I wasn't sure. Because for so many years, I blew smoke. By blowing smoke, I'm lying, I'm making up stuff, I'm sounding good, I'm being everything but. But until I started becoming true to myself and actually letting that guard down, you know, you know what we talk about this individual we were talking about before, how he's rough around the edges. How can someone approach someone like that and want to say, can you sponsor me? Everybody asks me that now. Can you sponsor me? Because of the word, the softness, the truth, the love. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just that it's, it's truth. It's truth. When somebody's being sincere, you really get well, to know it. You also have a, a very loving way about you in the meeting in general. You know, you have a very, like, you know, sweet way. You know, so that, that makes sense to me. But they also approach that other guy. And, he's, and he doesn't have, I bet he has a, a lovey thing underneath it all, too. Because, like, when you sit here and you recount fucking, you know, 40 years of drug addiction and recovery, what does it make you feel like? I wouldn't change nothing. 
I love the, the spot that I'm in right now. I could sit at a meeting and I do this on a daily basis. I look down at the carpet and I'm right there. Keep your head where your feet are. I know you've heard that before. But if you can really experience it, like, you know, I've been hearing these cliches or these fucking, what do you call these things one day at a time? What do you, what's the word you use for it? I mean, there's cliches, but there's slogans, I guess. Slogans. I've been hearing these things for a long fucking time, mm-hmm. been around 32 years. None, nothing changes if nothing changes. You heard me say that right over my head. Everything went right over my head. I get everything now. I understand what you're saying. And at the same time, but your biggest slogan now is you don't know anything. It's because when you sit around and you realize and you see this disease eating up these people, old and young, 33 years sober, going out, okay? The guy said, the guy's in the fucking rooms and he stops coming to meetings. 33 years, this guy fucking buddy. He stopped coming to meetings, man. He just, you know, he says, has such a great life. He's pulling up with a Hellcat. He's pulling up with a Lamborghini. You know what I mean? I got this. I'm good. I make money like that. You know what's going to happen if I stop going to meetings? I'm going to do what they do. I love being in meetings. I'm comfortable in meetings. I feel good about myself. I'm not blowing smoke anymore. Right. And maybe I can help somebody else. That's my attitude. And do you think the I don't know, is it's like the absolute way to guarantee humility is to acknowledge that you don't know. Because if you know, then you're fucked. You know what I'm saying? Ray shared at a meeting one day. He says to me, I don't remember what it says, these things in the book, on what page. So if I, if I remember them, I won't go back and read them. Right. He said that at the beach one yeah, day. Yeah, I remember when he said and that. And that's like exactly where I'm at. Right. I don't remember these things. Right, and I stay don't fresh. Re- it keeps you I fresh. Wanna, when, when I read the fourth step, the second step, the seventh step, it's like, wow. I read the fourth step at the barn last week. And I was so into it. I was like entangled in the fucking pages. Like right. it was the first time I read it. Right. And I've been through it page by page, paragraph by paragraph, over and over and over again so many times. And it was so nice and new and, and just beautiful to see and how I can reflect my life, whether I'm helping somebody else with my wife, my children, with you, with everything, with God, man. And now, first of all, thank you. This has been a deep and, and you know, fascinating plunge from debauchery to recovery, which I like. But if you can think of some, one horrible drug story that rings out in your head from your past, what pops in your head first? I'm sure you have a I million. Sat in, I sat in an elevator shaft down in Far Rockaway in, in the Wavecrest building for six days. I would only come out to get more drugs. And I was hallucinating in the dark bugging the fuck out. And I, was, I mean, I, I don't know how I'm not in a fucking straitjacket, but the scariest, scariest, fucking craziest fucking darkness that you can ever imagine that your mind might ever be able to take you to. I was there for a whole week. Scariest fucking thing I ever experienced. How'd you get out of there? Ran out of drugs. Right, right. Well, John, Johnny Jukebox, I think you've said it all. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Do you feel traumatized? Do you feel good? I feel amazing. Thanks, Johnny. All right, that was Johnny Jukebox on Dopey. I bet that was the first podcast he ever did. Oh, yeah, that was, a, that was quite a story. The funniest part is that, like, his son calls him, like, during the thing, and he's like, yo, why are you sleeping all day? 
And his son's like, what are you doing, Dad? He's like, I'm doing an interview for a podcast. <laughs> and he goes home, and his wife's like, what are you doing? He's like, I was on a podcast. Like, it's the, it's what he does. Yeah. You know? <laughs> of course. So, so what? why did you think it was such a crazy story? Well, it's like so much criminality, so much like he's industrious. He's very hardworking. You know, like I was getting exhausted listening to him breaking into houses and stores, and like that was a lot of work, a lot and of burglary to, to do. And and the, and then that whole thing of like how crack makes you just like it takes over your brain, like it's a it's a what do you call it? parasite? It takes over your brain and makes you makes you break into that house. Yeah, you see, I admitted on this show that I got a happy ending once. Yeah, I don't I don't feel good <laughs> about it. I was going to cut it out. What do you think, Ray? I I went to I, leave it in. I went to a masseuse one time. Yes, and she massaged me, and then she's like, "Do you want more?" And she made the motion of jerking off, and I was like, "Oh," because I had like wanted to go to a place that did not have that, and then I just, I felt bad because I I felt bad for her, like that's her job, and. Just ruined the whole thing for me. You're like, yes. And then I said, yes. Like, can you put on a fake mustache <laughs> and beard and let her talk about it? But I go to Chinatown to the legit places that are like You're like, 20... do you have a police uniform you could put on and you could do it? <laughs> no, I could... Did you let her do it or no? No. That would be awesome if you, if you did. <laughs> a friend of mine did. He, it was quite expensive. What, to get dressed up as a police no, officer and have no, the 69 happy the ending. <laughs> No, I think my the when I did it. First of all, I'm totally ashamed. Yeah, totally should be totally ashamed. But I was not sober then, and I was not with my with Linda then. Yeah, I was single. I was using. Yeah, it was a mess. I had a bad. I had what I had was I had a pinched nerve from waiting tables, and it, my friends like, hey, you should go get a massage. You know, <laughs> you get that fucking oh, so happy ending. You didn't go. Did you go with the thought of having a happy ending? I was open to it. Oh, when okay. I, went. I went there to get the, the knot work yeah, out yeah. of my pinched nerve. And then she said, oh, you want... And I literally was like trying to hold her hand. She's like, the creepiest yeah, thing yeah, happened today. Yeah. I'm like... <laughs> trying to jerk this guy off. I'm trying off. to jerk this guy off and he's trying to hold my hand. No, while she was giving me the massage, I was trying to hold her hand. Or, I was, it was really... Really not good. I should take this out of the show. I no, should have, I should never admit this kind of stuff. Um, my my friend that went, he was too drunk to even do anything, but they charged him for it. So you're saying I, I bare my soul and I yeah. mention what I did, and you tell me some story where a, a woman offered, and you said no, I, I could never put you in that position. <laughs> have you ever paid for sex, Ray Brown? Uh, yes, by accident. What was that? I brought someone home, and after we had had sex, he was like, you know I'm working, right? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And You're like, I thought we were in love. <laughs> and he's like, no, I need this amount of money. And I, I gave it to him to get him out of my apartment. He was also smoking crack. Any other thoughts? And you smoked crack on one of your last relapses in Florida. Oh, please. What? <laughs> yes, yes. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. How many people in the audience are smoking crack right now? All of them. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what else did you think about Johnny? What was your favorite thing about Johnny? Well, and it had a surprise ending because he... A happy ending, A happy and happy surprise ending that he'd been uh, sober since 91, but then he'd had some relapses in there, but and he learned from those. Like He was like, thank God for the relapse because I never would have gotten to where I am now. Not only that, like his relapses humbled him. Yeah. To the point where, like, he really helps a lot of people. Yeah. 
Which is the best. I got that impression. Well, you said to me once, um, isn't it funny how everything that's in the big book turns out to be true? I said that? Yes. That doesn't sound you, like me. You said that. Isn't it funny how if you have one drink, then you're like, uh, you know, you're on the way. Well, there was something that Chris always used to say, and I'm sure he heard it somewhere else, which is that, and I said it at a meeting this, this weekend, and everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. But Chris once said that we all have these, uh, like a pilot light burning, and then one drink or one oh, yeah. drug will activate it, and it will be... Yeah. And uh, I That's, shared that at a meeting. That every, everyone was sharing. It was, it was a meeting that, about the compulsion to drink being lifted, the compulsion yeah. to use being lifted. And I swear to God, everybody was like so fucking sober. They were all like, yeah, I don't have the compulsion. My, my, my obsession and compulsion has been lifted. My obsession and compulsion has been lifted. And I'm just like, and then I set the room straight because that's, yeah. that's what I'm there to do. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, my obsession and compulsion to use are lifted. But if I use something, I bet you it would all come right yeah, back. Right. You know? Um, are you excited for the Dopey Fitness Challenge? I don't know anything about it. Are you going to participate in the Dopey Fitness Challenge? I'll have to hear what it is first. All right. From Baywatch. You know, yeah. you know this guy from Baywatch? He's all jacked up. He's a very handsome I, man. I know Baywatch. Are you familiar with uh, Jeremy Jackson, who played David Hasselhoff's son, Hobie? Well, he's in great shape. He's very handsome, and he's agreed to participate in the Dopey Fitness Challenge. Oh, good. So you want to hear what he has to say, yeah. the challenge? Yeah, let's Are you going to do it? I'll decide afterwards. Here we go. We're experimenting. I've been, I've been threatening our audience with the Dopey Fitness Challenge for like three years, and I've gotten less and less fit every day. So Jeremy Jackson, mm -hmm. fitness guru, horrible drug addict in recovery, TV star. What do we do? Oh, all right. Well, listen, man. Like all good things, fundamentally sound, we're going to start real small, real simple. We're going to start with more water intake. Okay. Oh my God. I want, here's what I like to do. Now there's, when, when it comes to fitness, when it comes to nutrition, what I would love to do is build your followers, your listeners, our brothers and sisters up. And the foundation is so important. And this, this is a lot more than just drinking more water. This has a lot to do with being intentional about what you are putting in your body, building habitual um, constants, things that you just don't stop doing that, that become um, second nature. They become a habit. At first, it's kind of hard. You forget. Uh, you, you, know, you skip a day. Oh, my gosh. I said I was going to do this. What am I doing? I'm such an idiot. I can't even drink water. You know, how are we going to change our entire life if we, can, if we can't just change and uptake and upgrade our water intake? So what I like to do is I like to start the day every day with us at, at least 16 ounces of water i prefer 32 maybe women can do 16 or you know smaller people can do 16 and uh bigger guys can do 32 fresh spring water clean water we're gonna start the day with that and here's what we're gonna do throughout the day in between our meals if you want to set an alarm you can if you want to do what I do, which is anytime I think about food or I think I'm hungry or I realize, oh, my lunch breaks in an hour, I take that opportunity that food always reminds me to drink water. So 
I'll drink another 16. I like, I'd like to drink 16 to 32 in between every meal. If you drink water with meals, you're diluting your digestive enzymes. You are flooding your stomach with water. You're thinning out all of your precious acids that are there to die, dissect, digest, and metabolize food. So we don't want to harm that. Um, it's better to sip beverages lightly during meals and to flood your body in between meals first thing in the morning. Um, and I like to pull that back around six o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock. Stop doing that because otherwise you'll be up peeing all night. But this is going to do a lot of things. A lot of people, they actually overeat because they're thirsty, because right. they're dehydrated, because the cells in the body don't have enough mineral content. We're looking for magnesium, copper, manganese, you know, uh, all these precious minerals that are so important to the uptake of nutrients into the cells. So I could go on forever and we could get crazy. But what I'm going to do, what I hope to do with the Dopey Fitness Challenge is to build up an army of people who feel empowered with their new habits. Slow and steady wins the race. We're starting at step one. We're not jumping to the ninth step. We're not, we're not going to worry about the fourth step. You know, yeah, I might, well, I start talking about carnivore diet and I start talking about keto and how we're going to do this and that. It might be too much. But right here, right now, let's just admit, you know, that, that we we're powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. <laughs> I, have, I, have two, I have two questions. First question, mm -hmm. how much water do you want us drinking before five? I, uh, I personally like to drink a gallon and a half on days that I work out. I find myself drinking less water on days that I don't work out. A gallon is nice. Um, but you know, if we're talking about somebody who doesn't drink any water yes. at all, yes. Talking about very beginner. Any improvement is improvement, right? We'll settle for centimeters and inches. Let's just say we're going to go 16, bare minimum, 16 ounces of water. You, you got right when you wake up, after, you know, breakfast, before lunch, after lunch, but before dinner. That's 10, 20, 36, 20, you know, we're talking about 50, that's half a gallon. Okay, right so that's what we that's want. Half a gallon. And does this mean if, if water, when you eat, is thinning out enzymes, what happens if you're drinking Diet Coke? <laughs> you know, I, that's, a, that's a, actually a deep question because I've wondered if the carbonic acid and the citric acids and the other ingredients in there might actually digest protein better or help assimilate protein better because it's so acidic. You, you pour it on a battery, right? It eats all the corrosion off. Yes. So I, I wonder if it actually has... <laughs> <clears throat> this is not studied, but regardless, um, half a gallon, we're going to go half a gallon, bare minimum, these guys are going to be drinking um, per day, and up to a gallon and a half, and let's shoot for a gallon um, on, on, uh, on people who are already drinking a decent amount of water. If you're drinking no water, we'll settle for it. We'll meet you halfway, half a gallon. Yeah, I don't drink enough water. My daughter became obsessed with drinking water, and I was trying to keep up with her. I'm going to go for the half gallon. I'm excited. I don't have that in my, in my routine. My routine is 200 push-ups, 200 sit-ups, five-minute meditation. That's my routine. But I'm fat. That's beautiful. And I'm, and I'm not spiritually fit. I'm not physically or spiritually fit. So I'm adding water. Let me ask you a real quick question. It's going to be a long answer, but it's a quick question. Mm -hmm. You've never not <laughs> been in physical shape, right? Using, oh, oh. I mean, like when you, when you stopped using, when you got into recovery, how did you respond physically to it? 
uh, going back to health and fitness. Well, were you were you really skinny in the meth era, or were you or were you still oh working out? Dude, listen, I, I I take one sip of booze, I smoke one joint, I take half an Adderall, I, whatever I could from the from the little stuff to the big stuff. As soon as I get a buzz going, I'm never stepping foot in the gym again. And protein shake, get that out of my face. That's lame. Um, I have no interest in being healthy, physically fit, or active uh, when I'm when I'm drinking or using. Period. What was your body um, like? What was your body like then? Oh, skin, dude, I, I, I got this picture. I got to send it to you. I got a big old bobble apple head and this, this boyish body. Right. Frail, you know? Okay. So that's good and to know. Cause I was imagining you, face off I, and, yeah, no, I was no, imagining no, you no. super I, ripped, uh, you know, you know, slamming meth and such. That's what I was imagining. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh no. I wish I'm, 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 I'm laying in a pile of stolen goods in some uh a garage with homeless people you know okay i feel good about i I feel good about that um (laughs) and then i i mean we have i want to keep this short and sweet because you're going from uh rehab to rehab to teach how to access the infinite within do you want to just lay that on on the dopey nation for a second because i'm hearing (laughs) more and more about the breath work to achieve psychedelic results and it's fascinating to me yeah, man, I love it. Six, seven years ago, one of my buddies was just urging me to do this stuff. Really, nobody in the rehab industry, you know, had uh, heard about it. There were no groups. People weren't talking about it online. It was pretty much an ancient art that people were doing in Kundalini yoga only, and you know, maybe some some gurus out there. And, and uh, but this particular form of transformational breath work or transformative breath work is really about getting the spiritual experience, letting go of everything I think I need, everything I think I know, anything and everything my physical finite body is capable of in order to access that God consciousness, that universal oneness, the infinite wisdom, Akashic records, inner child work, uh, you know, spiritual healing, uh, evolution of the consciousness, elevation of the soul, whatever you want to call it. And we're hyper-oxygenating the bloodstream through mouth breathing and mouth breathing only. It takes 18 and a half minutes. And if you're willing to face some discomfort, just like anything else in life, there are leaps and bounds that we can grow in this short 18 and a half minute experience, which have, uh, you know, changed my life. And, and now I'm out here just, just trying to love on people, man. It sounds incredible. If, if we want to really try is. to access this thing, what would we be looking up for this mouth breathing stuff? I feel like you and I should just do one. Uh, we should do it. Uh, I'll, I'll coach it verbally. We'll have everybody. We got to do a special episode where everybody has a place to lay down, open their mouths and breathe. We'll set up a special event, one of these PMs or something. All right. I would love that. Let's do that. We'll do that. That's awesome. Let's do it. Now, before you go, would you tell a horrendous- You got to promise me something. You got to promise me you're going to go hard. I can't promise anything. I will make my best and I'll make my best effort though. I can't make any promises, but I will try. Yeah. I will go I will go as hard as I can possibly go. I will try. 100%. Okay. No, cuz I'm like right I'm in this spot right now where like I'm ready to like kick it up. You know what I mean? Like I I felt very stagnant for a minute and I'm reading and I'm meditating and I'm exercising and I want to do more. So I'm I'm excited to to have you be on on board. It's very exciting to me. 
Um, but because this is dopey and it's around Christmas time, can you think of a horrendous holiday story around Christmas and drugs? Oh my gosh. I mean, it was never nice. I was talking to my sponsor about it the other day, man. I, I remember, uh, you know, just, just, it's just so basic and sad and just one more hit and I'm going to be able to show up, you know, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there and just not making it to the Christmas tree. No, you're not making it home to see the family. That, that, those were the worst, man. You know, thinking I'm going to show up, thinking I'm going to just need a shower and a half of Xanax and I'll be okay. Um, and not even being able to make it, dude, you know, and being aghast and shocked and flabbergasted how, how it's, you know, already 5 PM. And, and at 5 a.m., I was going to get ready to go, and right. it's already over, and I missed it. I never want to do that again. Right. What, what's, your, what's your holiday look like this year? Keeping it pretty chill, man. Mom, sister, granny. We're going to – I think we're doing enchiladas, man. We're, we're, we, we had a nice Thanksgiving. There was no blowouts. It was incredible. It was, we talked about the Golden Key by Emmett Fox, which – uh, I told you a little bit about, we, we read some spiritual literature together. We had a nice meal and everybody shared openly about, about God and, uh, and their experience with their higher power. It was really cool. Well, that sounds nice. I think we should do, um, the breathing thing in some kind of zoom with dopey nation folks. And we should do a That's golden great. key, golden key dopey book club. Would you want to do that? Woo! I ain't scared. All right, there we go. That means you're willing to do it in, in Southern California talk, right? Uh, I ain't scared I means, no. means okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Right on, Jeremy. Well, go fucking, go, go get these kids sober and pass along the good shit. And um, I'm glad you did two it. See, we got two weeks. Everybody has two weeks. We need accountability. I want people to be chiming in. All right, I got my gallon in today. Check in with us. Let us know. I'll be looking. We'll be looking. And in two weeks, we're going to have new directives. We're going to add to the to the soup of uh, of the fitness life. We're going to keep adding it, spicing it up, seasoning it up. And uh, this is the way to do it. Slow and steady is going to win the race and a little bit of progress. All right. So in two weeks, we're adding to it. Sound good? Dopey Fitness Challenge with Jeremy Jackson. How do people follow you, Jeremy? At Jeremy Jackson Fitness. At Jeremy Jackson Fitness. At Jeremy Jackson Fitness. I'm so it's so easy. And if you want to get crazy, if you, if you want to go Jeremy Jackson weirdo style, you start praying over that water. Grab that cup of water, shoot it with some good positive energy, some vibration. Know that that water is going to fill you up. It's going to keep you satiated and purify you, cleanse you, and you're so grateful for that water as you drink it. So what do you, you say? What do you say to the water? What do you say? I love you. What you what, what, you're so pure, so clean. Yeah, this. Yeah, thank you, water, for just cleansing me and and nourishing my body, filling me with minerals that are going to help me feel less full, uh, less hungry all day. This is amazing. It's like baptizing. It's like I'm being reborn. Every sip is like God entering every cell of my body. Whatever, just do something, dude. Yeah. Do you know it took us like six months to do fifteen minutes? It took us six <laughs> months to do fucking fifteen minutes. But uh, just I appreciate to tell people you. to drink more water. All right. Well, no, but that's a, it's a start. I think, you know, little by little, little by little, we get there. Um, thank you, yeah. Jeremy Jackson. Fucking cool. I love you guys. I love your people. Two weeks. We'll talk about the water. We love you too. I'm excited. Enjoy yourself. Hey. Talk soon. So are you ready for all that? 
I, I can drink water. Can you drink a gallon and a half of water before 5 o'clock? Probably. All right. Well, it's on. I'm going for the half gallon of water, and we recorded this yesterday, and I didn't drink a drop of water today. Oh, I drank a lot before I came here. All right. So Dopey Nation, start drinking water. In two weeks, we're going to add to this fitness challenge. Ray Brown, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, are you going to participate in this fitness challenge? Uh, yeah, I'll do this. Uh, Dopey Nation, as always. Send uh, stories and emails and voicemails, and you can get a free pair of socks. Ray just got a new pair of dopey socks. Are you excited? Yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you? 10. 10. And, uh, 11. All right. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> be in touch. And, uh, you know, follow us everywhere. Do the, all this shit, whatever. Follow Jeremy Jackson. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Have a blessed day. Pray to your water. And fucking toodles for Chris. Yep. Fucking toodles for Chris. In a motel room in West Virginia, you told me about Topicon. Then we drove up to Quincy's house and the rest is history. Oh, but history is unwritten. By the time I got to Topicon, there was a hundred people strong. They told me to wait in the game room and I was freaking out Cause I thought they were gonna put me in rehab And I thought, what the fuck have I signed up for? But then Cormac did the sound The whole night opened up and revealed itself And everybody there just got it When we sang good so bad I almost cried and the smallness Oh, cat weasel and cats to hear tonight I looked over at you And the Iowa crew and I said to Alan It's a miracle Dave made it through And that he was able From a kitchen table on a sofa with Chris Oh, a Nissan cilantro Through the fish tank bubbles The crickets in the yard Laughing at the tales of coming down so hard And I was coming down too True love wasn't true Super vodka in the world couldn't help So I turned to you All of you And hey Dave I've never licked the toilet seat I've never eaten a pubic hair My sponsor doesn't approve of any of this What the fuck I don't care Oh so bless up for the bliss And fucking toodles for Chris Up there Looking down at all of this Pray for us all Cause this world can be scary And please God, please let Dave Out of the deli This is how a church gets made This is how the bricks get laid This is how a fucking Toby Khan song gets played.
I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had